the love yeah yes uh anyway uh welcome to the program michelle uh very excited uh you've got a couple really killer uh horror classic birthdays you're going to talk about tonight yep uh john carradine and lon cheney jr very nice very nice indeed and uh miles welcome back you you're on uh, still on your submariner kick uh and uh which is always fun you've got a, another um uh what uh, a typhoon class submarine yes the typhoon class which is what the movie the hunt for red october was about yeah last week wasn't submarines it was a destroyer oh that's that was, right it was an anti-submarine destroyer but uh yes uh it was related to uh the hunt for red october as is this segment nice so very cool and uh looking forward to that and of course uh joe santorsa uh, the Italian stallion, uh, <laughs> going <laughs> to be talking about one of your fellow Italian Americans, uh, tonight, uh, who is a, a wildly entertaining and funny man and Italian actor. What, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I Am I think funny? I'm funny? Am how I funny? funny? Yeah. <laughs> you think I'm funny? Funny, funny how? Funny how? Yeah. Am I a clown? See? You operate the clown car garage. Um, it's true. <laughs> and uh, but of course, that's Joe Pesci. You're going to be talking about tonight, so that's exciting. That is. And uh, I just have uh, one uh, one short subject I'm going to be talking about tonight in the first segment, and then we'll pass the baton to Miles. Um, it, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, James Spader has always been a guy that I've kind of looked up to. And when I was younger, people used to tell me I looked like him, especially around the sexualized and videotape era. Because he had a very similar haircut to what I had back back then, and I was super blonde as was he, and um and I also like to you know videotape women talking about sex. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's uh th- that was a really controversial movie back in the day, uh, 1989, Sex Lies and Videotape. Uh, here, let's listen to the trailer for that. It's pretty short. It's the most provocative film of the year. Vincent Canby in the New York Times calls it one of the best of 89, exceptionally accomplished and witty. Being happy isn't all that great. I mean, the last time I was really happy, I got 
so fat. The Los Angeles Times calls it brilliant. A delicate and sexually charged film. Rolling Stone says it's dazzling, fun, and scorchingly erotic. Oh. <laughs> Why don't you let me tape you? Doing what? John and Anne don't have sex anymore. And Time Magazine calls it terrific. The season's smartest and funniest film. Is it for me? Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Is that for me? Yeah, it's for you. A Miramax Films release. Oh, Miramax. Uh, but yeah, Andy McDowell, James Spader, Laura San Giacomo. Uh, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, and uh, Peter Gallagher, I think. Was he the guy who played Mr. Big in Sex in the City? Is that who he was? Um... I've sure. never seen Sex and the City. Yeah, I never have either. Uh, I've seen it tangentially, but I'm very good at if I see a face, uh, you know, I, I, you know, and I've seen a poster or a trailer or something like that, I can usually place it. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, no, I don't see, I don't see him there. But uh, anyway, yeah, so great, great stuff. Uh, that it was a, you know, again. Kind of a fun but dated movie, obviously videotape. Um, and that the the name of the movie uh, actually has been copped many times. There's sex lies and uh, murder is is something that um, was like a TV series or something like that. Um, and uh, you know, just uh, so it it like again, it was very. Um, uh, you know, dated for that fact, but it, it was a huge, you know, success at the time. I remember a huge Rolling Stone write up, uh, on it. And, um, uh, oh, he, the, I'm sorry, this guy, Peter Gallagher, was not in Sex in the City, he was in Law and Order Special Victims Unit and Californication and Grace and Frankie as well. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so. Uh, you know, this was a, an interesting film. It was a pretty small film, but, you know, again, wildly successful and really helped launch James Spader's career. Although I was looking at his filmography, he has not made a ton of movies. Uh, he just, you know, just has not. And, um, the, the, you, you know, uh, I th expected to see a lot more, uh, in his, um, in his, you know, on his Wikipedia page or whatever, but you know, he, you know, he has been doing the blacklist for quite a while on TV, which sadly I've never seen. Uh, and of course his birthday is, uh, February 7th, 1960. So he's just turned Ooh, 60. That's a good day. That's a very good day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's your birthday, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Happy birthday. And, uh, he's born in Boston, Massachusetts. And, uh, and yeah, and uh, he. Let me see his yeah his filmography. He he really hasn't even done a movie that I'm seeing at least on his Wikipedia page uh, since Avengers: Age of Ultron, uh, which is kind of interesting because a little bit of trivia about that is he was also in a movie called Less Than Zero with Robert Downey Jr. and he was in Avengers: Age of Ultron with Robert Downey Jr. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, uh, of course, Less Than Zero 
actually kind of foreshadowed a lot of the problems that uh, Robert Downey Jr. had with drugs and alcohol um, because that movie was all about, you know, spoiled rich kids in um, in ho- Hollywood uh, and, uh, you know, basically abusing drugs and getting into trouble and, and all that jazz. So, uh, and of course we know Robert Downey Jr. struggled with addiction for many years, but, uh, you know, yeah. put himself back on top. So I, I almost wonder if uh, he helped uh, helped uh, uh, James Spader out get the role of Ultron. I do like him as Ultron, but the only my only criticism of the Ultron character is robotic lips. There was no need to give him robotic lips. Ultron right. classically is just a big gaping maw, and that's creepier to me. Where you when you don't see a mouth moving. You know, I mean, you know, like Miles, Darth Vader, you don't see a mouth moving, you know. Right. Um, so, Optimus Prime. Sure. You know, lots of, well, actually, I think they gave him lips in the in the movies. Did, um, did they? Yeah. I think they gave him robot lips in the movies. I haven't seen the movies. But, yeah. Good oh, for oh, you. Okay. Good for you. Save those brain cells. Um, but uh, you, you'll be smarter for not seeing them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, uh, again, he's had a pretty interesting, uh, career. He had a huge breakout success, of course, when, in, uh, 1994 in Stargate and the year before that he was in Wolf with Jack Nicholson. Um, but you know, and, and he had, had done some other, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but, uh, there's a great sci-fi movie, uh, called Supernova. With James Spader and Angela Bassett, Robert Forster is in it, Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, Robin Tunney, and uh, a few other uh, famous names of the time. Uh, but that was a that was a pretty decent movie. I remember reading it when it first came out, and I was uh, I was pretty impressed. Um, I, I don't remember seeing that, but I do. I think uh, Blacklist is something I'd, I'd like to watch. I think so too. You know, I, 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 just because I enjoy him so much as an actor, especially on, uh, The Office, I kind of, and you know, because a lot of people gave a lot of flack, Joe, to the character of Robert mm. California on The Office, but I thought it was mm. a, a, a brilliant character. Well, I, I got, I could vouch for the blacklist because my wife Barbara has been a big fan of blacklist all the way back. She's never missed. She loves it. And I've seen several episodes, and it is worth watching. It's been on for nearly a decade. I know that I, I saw a little yes. bit of an interview with him, and I guess they obviously they shut down production for quite some time during the pandemic. Um, yeah, there's a new. I think there's a new season out now. Yeah, I think she was watching a new season, but um, very interesting character, very interesting story arcs. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's something to enjoy. Yeah, I'm gonna have to but, check but it I, out. Mm-hmm. I do know his hair is not does not have that wonderfully feathered bleach. Oh God, no! Look. Oh Maybe God, no. <laughs> no! No! So he's not that James Spader, but he's not that character either. No, yeah. he's not. I know the character in the in the blacklist, and he's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have gonna... I have seen some YouTube clips of Spader on Boston Legal, I think, and they are some oh, yeah. ac- excellent argument stuff. He just lays into. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's. Some of the scenes at the end of uh, Boston Legal, him and William Shatner sharing a brandy and a cigar on the nice. patio. That's classics. Great. 
So, uh, so yeah, so let me get to some audio clips here. I've got some fun stuff. I'm not necessarily going to play them in any specific order. I think I'll save the funniest one for last, uh, which is an interview from uh, on when he was on the press tour for, for Stargate. But um, I want to start with um, when he first made his splash on The Office, I believe it was season seven, um, and uh, Andy was gone. And they were, uh, I, I don't, I don't remember the whole storyline because I mean, there's a lot of episodes there, but this is pretty late in the game. But so this, this guy, Robert California comes in and Toby, Jim and, uh, Gabe are all interviewing him, but they're not really interviewing him. He's kind of interviewing them and really intimidating them. <laughs> And and it, it, this this shows what you're in store for with this character of Robert California, who is just this like psychosexual weirdo, <laughs> and you know uh, uh, just just a debaucherous crazy bastard. And um, I, I I love this this uh, I was laughing so hard the first time I ever saw this, but uh, this is a about a two minute clip of Robert California. Uh, basically nailing the interview for for <laughs> to be a, a member of Dunder Mifflin. How will your experience selling refinery equipment translate to our smaller scale here? You don't work in sales, do you? Uh, human resources. You see, I sit across from a man. I see his face. I see his eyes. Now, does it matter if he wants $100 of paper? or a hundred million dollars of deep sea drilling equipment. Don't be a fool. He wants respect. He wants love. He wants to be younger. He wants to be attractive. There is no such thing as a product. Don't ever think there is. There is only sex. Everything is sex. Do you understand that what I'm telling you is a universal truth? Toby. Yes. Okay, I, I am. I'm almost a little concerned that you might be overqualified for the position. Do you? Um, do you think that you are? Do I look like someone who would waste my own time? No. You. You are a man of great confidence. Could you speak a little more to that, and what the role of confidence? would be in a dialogue with a support. <laughs> Will you be heard? Will you have a voice? Will I steamroll over you? Do you feel heard right now, Jim? Do you have a voice right now? You can answer me. Yeah. That was your choice, not mine. <laughs> the fallacy is that it is up to the steamroller. It is up to the object whether it will be flattened or not. And I can tell just from the small interaction we've had already, you won't be flattened by anybody. Do you agree with me, Jim? Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> they're, just, they're just, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Would, would you? Um is to. this the audition? <laughs> yeah. No, no, that that's that's oh. uh, him. Uh, yeah. uh, they're interviewing him for the job. <laughs> <laughs> these are these aren't the droids you're. 
Butler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, uh, but yeah, that, those are three three other characters from the office that uh, he basically <laughs> uh, just steamrolled with his personality, you know, and uh, it, and it's hysterical to see the other stuff that he uh, uh, he does in the show. There was one. There's one moment when I couldn't find the longer interaction from it. I just found the the real uh, the the reaction to um, uh, he was Andy was trying to blackmail Robert California towards the end of the run on the uh, the end of that character's run on the series, and um, it, it, and basically he Andy was weaseling his way back into the job. And he calls and he tries to blackmail Robert California. And this is Robert California's reaction. Well, I will not be blackmailed by some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft penis debutante. You want to start a street fight with me, bring it on. But you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. You don't even know my real name. <laughs> I am real, the Lizard King. His real name's I like can... Kaczynski or something like that. I, um, I was waiting to just say, I am the Lizard King. I can. The uh, doors. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway. And and you know what? That, that character comes out in Blacklist, let me tell you. Yeah. Hey, Tennessee, can uh, you come? Could you stop that, man? Sorry, I got a cat that's out of control. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so you, you're saying that his character on the blacklist is uh, equally as intimidating by ten. Okay. It, yeah, I've <laughs> the clips I've seen. Yeah, blacklist. Nice. He is a monster. But James Spader, I think I saw some clips of him being interviewed. It was either David Letterman or Colbert, and yeah. James Spader doesn't take shit. He just stands in there. He just sits there and stares at you, yeah. like he yeah, can no. just kill you if you wanted to. You know, stares. He's not through. a good inter- He's not a good interview. No, no. He doesn't like no, it. I, I've, I, he doesn't like. You know, uh, he only likes certain shows. He he did like Letterman quite a bit. Um, but uh, th- this, but yeah, oh yeah, Robert California. His real name is Bob Kazamakis. <laughs> <laughs> So he's that's the Lizard King's real name. You don't even know my real name. I want to hear that again. Well, I will not be blackmailed by some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft penis debutante. You want to start a street fight with me, bring it on. But you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. Bob Kazamakis. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, But anyway, so that, those are a couple of my favorite moments from from The Office. Um, now uh, you want intense and creepy. Uh, the in Avengers: Age of Ultron, Tennessee. I'm telling you, you need to chill out, buddy. He's being a dick. Uh, come on, go see your mom. Go see your mom. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm negotiating with a terrorist right now. Um, so, uh, but it, yeah, uh, and speaking of terror, Ultron, when Ultron came to life, of course, in Avengers Age of Ultron, Tony Stark wanted to build a suit of armor around the world, and with the help of Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Incredible Hulk, uh, they created a program called Ultron, 
that would help do uh, uh, early uh, threat detection uh, around the globe and dispatch an army of uh, uh, robo armor uh, troop troopers that Tony Stark basically had a factory building. Um, you know, ready-made uh, robot fighters, you know, based on his armor technology. Well, <laughs> things went a little haywire, and uh, Ultron became sentient and began to battle Jarvis, Jarvis, which is uh, the voice of Paul Bettany, and also the consciousness that went into the creation of the character, the Vision. Um, yeah, the AI. Yeah, the AI. And, uh, and, and essentially James Spader's, uh, uh, as Ultron, uh, versus Paul Bettany's Jarvis, uh, they got in basically a, a, an AI fight <laughs> and Ultron came out victorious. And this is where Ultron finds himself in a kind of beat up, uh, Stark tech robot, and he uh, is is presents himself at a bit a little party that the Avengers are throwing at Avengers Tower. No. How could you be worthy? You're all killers. Stark. Jarvis. I'm sorry, I was asleep. Or I was a dream. Reboot. Legionnaire has got a buggy suit. Terrible noise. And I was tangled in, in strings. Had to kill the other guy. He was a good guy. You killed someone? Wouldn't have been my first call. But down in the real world, we're faced with ugly choices. Who sent you? Ultra. In the flesh. Or no, not yet. Not this Christmas. But I'm ready. I'm on mission. What mission? Peace in our time. Sorry, I know you mean well. You just didn't think it through. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. How is humanity saved if it's not allowed to evolve? With these, these puppets. There's only one path to peace. The Avengers Extinction. Strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings on me. There you go. You got the creepy Pinocchio reference, too. Uh, yeah, that Disney piece. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Taking full advantage of that Disney Marvel merger. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it, it pretty, you know, I have a lot of problems with that movie, mostly because I, I just, 
I think Joss Whedon just didn't really care that much because he wanted to work with his own properties. Um, the first Avengers movie was was great. This one uh, suffered a lot, but James Spader's performance, uh, you know, I, I just wish they hadn't given robot lips to him. It, I'm, I'll never get over that. It's so dumb. You know, he didn't need... And when he, Ultron first emerged, his mouth did not move. But then they upgrade... You know, he upgraded his body, and then it's like, oh, he he's like, yeah, I need lips that move. No, why would a robot think that? Why would an AI think that lips are necessary? <laughs> Wasn't he drawn the comic with a, a completely... Just a, 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 a sheer face mask? No uh, movement, period? Yeah, he it was just a sheer face mask with a very large opening uh where his mouth was, a very like hyper exaggerated uh uh shrieking face kind of mouth. Right. Like you a know? scream, like the scream portrait from Yeah, yeah the scream. Yeah, printing. with a very kind of Kirby esque teeth, uh, you know, very simplified two prongs. Um and you know it was, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, it, th that I think was just a big misstep. It just looked silly. Um, the design of Ultron in the comics was so scary. Uh, it would have translated perfectly and they did not need a mouth to move. You know, we, we talk about, you know, characters like Darth Vader don't need a mouth but moving. I, I did like the overall body look though. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was not bad. It was not bad. So, uh, but, you know, but I did, you know, some of the writing in it was a little bit weak. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but, but I'll tell you what, James Spader gave it his all. And, um, I think it was a great performance. Um, now this one his, is, yeah. His voice lends very well to that robotic, uh, echoing that they put into it. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, now this is the last clip I have, and I need to get to it uh, quickly so we don't cut into Miles' time. But this is James Spader on David Letterman in 1995 on a press tour for Starship Troopers, or not Starship Troopers, Stargate. And um, this is him talking about uh, being a broke stoner kid and never having a job. And he talked about a job that he got. And it very, very much reminds me of my early days uh, of uh, and my early work ethic your career was just getting off the ground how yeah. old a guy were you then uh 17 17 and you worked in a, in a local production you worked in a broadway kind of thing no, were you no, no 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 jesus i wasn't getting any work i uh <laughs> you know i you know i was broke all the time flat broke and you know so i was living with my sister and just sort of a stoner you know and and, and sort of a stoner sort of a you know Eating bad food and and uh, guy who worked in a quarry. I ate it? out of Smilers, you know, <laughs> oh, Smilers yeah, sure. in Seventh Avenue. Yeah. That was my entire diet was Smilers. And I worked at this answering service up there. I, I did sort of a bait and switch where I, I assumed that every actor needed an answering service for all right. those calls coming oh, sure. in. Of course, none were coming in at all for me. But uh, and I went up and, and I signed up for an answering service and and I applied for a job at the same place because I was always in need of a job. So so you were hiring an answering service and also, and also applying for the yeah. job. Are there any openings? So you and actually tonight, I'd like to know if there are any openings around but here. But you know, you, you, it was like you were just answering your own phone. No, 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 no. You could have stayed no, at home. Was, no, no, no. There was one room where there was an, there was one room where there was the answering service, and then there was another room where you know those late night ads, like at two in the morning. Oh yeah, where you, you dial, have your credit card ready. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Ron, it's Ron Popeil's, you know, fishing magician or whatever it is. <laughs> And you dial the 1-800 number, and 
you'd get me on the other end of the phone. Mm -hmm. I'd be taking orders for these things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the sewing, little pocket sewing machine, yep. you know, the pocket fishermen and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it, it was such a weird thing because there'd be like 10 of us all in a room and we each had a, a phone bank, you know, that had like 15 lines on it. And it would be dead for an hour and a half or something mm -hmm. because, you know, no one writes down the number and calls later. No. They only call as soon as the ad is run on TV. <laughs> so we'd be sitting around for like an hour and a half waiting there like that, you know, and we're getting the occasional obscene phone call or some poor guy, cool. you know, yeah. in the dark of night, you know, and calling us like nightly. And sometimes you get sick of it and hang up. Sometimes you sit there and listen and sort of en encourage them, you know, <laughs> sort of like, try and keep them on the line to make the evening more exciting. And then all of a sudden an ad would run for Pocket Fisherman and boom, every line like in the place. Like firemen yeah. answering right, the alarm. Exactly. Yeah. Every yeah. line would be lit up for the next hour. <laughs> and, but, you know, depending on how slow the night was leading up to that, you know, someone would bring in like a case of beer, you know, and we'd be sitting around the <laughs> place off, drinking like kids, yeah. and, you know, screwing off and everything, the American work ethic. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the ad would go off and we'd turn the phones down so they wouldn't ring and everything. They'd all light up and we'd sort of sit there and, you know, and chat some more and have another beer and watch the lines light up. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, so someone didn't get their pocket fisherman. You know, what a disaster that would be. Well, I, I, you know. I like the idea, though, that you could have taken their order and then said, do you, do you have any messages for James Spader? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Somebody didn't get their pocket Funny. fisherman. <laughs> What a and slacker. I remember those ads too. Oh, oh yeah, po I remember Pocket Fisherman. That was hysterical. Mm. So yeah, uh, <laughs> I caught a shark with one. Oh yeah, no, Sharky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're lucky if you could pull in a six ounce perch with those things. Those you're things are crappy. <laughs> you're lucky if you could catch something in your fish tank. <laughs> uh, yeah, I yes. Uh, I never had the desire to own one. Um, no. But uh, anyway, but hey, a fish. God bless Ron Popeil. Uh, so and Ronco. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we gotta we gotta get going to the break. But uh, yeah, I thought that that was a funny little story just to see and who uh, you know what his early non career was like. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's go ahead and run to the break, uh, Michelle. We have our first birthday trailer uh, break. And uh, okay. it's, uh, the first, yeah, first we do. three. Damn it. All right. Uh, we have uh, Barbie, Barbara Hershey, born February 5th, 1948 in Hollywood, Los Angeles. And everybody who's a Steph head, as well as listens to our show, probably knows this movie called The Entity in 1982. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, one of my favorite Brit British actors, Michael Sheen. Uh, born February 5th, 1969. Um, we have him in Apostle, 2018. And then, oh, who doesn't love a Leprechaun movie? We have Jennifer Aniston, born February 11th, 1969 in Sherman Oaks, California. And of course, she's in Leprechaun with Warwick Davies. Yay! Yeah, that's right. And her father is John Aniston, who used to be on the Days of Our Lives soap opera that I used to watch. Anyway, uh, here we go. I've always believed that there were several planes of existence. And we as human beings inhabit only one. What happened to you guys last night anyway? I was attacked. Is this the first time something like this has ever happened? No. Things have come to me. 
in the night. Why do I see and feel these things? Some things are more terrible than other things. And he felt like a man. Big man. But when my son came in, there was nobody there. He evaporated. That's classic poltergeist activity. You know, there was a time when people believed in the supernatural. These ghosts and demons were only ideas, but people saw them. You think I'm insane? First, we have to find out what the problem is. In the meantime, I'll be dead. He's stronger than you are. He'll kill me if he has to. Isn't it possible that some entity has crossed into our plane of existence? There was somebody there. I couldn't see him with my eyes, but there was somebody there. He's in the room! Will you appear to us now? It's my decision. What, to stay sick? To stay alive. Thomas, your sister. She's gone. These people, they're blasphemers. A cult. A disease. Bring her home. Name? Thomas Richardson. I dream of a world in which each waking day we rise equal. This island. It's our paradise. We have an intruder on our land. We have to find him. They've seen things. Who are you? You shall be cleansed according to the edict of this land. The promise of the divine is but an illusion. God is pain. God is suffering. Beware false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Let us begin.
really scared. Hello? I need the police. This is an emergency. You can kill anything. What the hell are you? You just gotta know how to do it. some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft-penis debutante. You want to start a street fight with me, bring it on, but you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. <laughs> you remember that episode of The Office, Joe, where uh, the, all the warehouse guys that won the lottery invested in the energy drink and the flavor, <laughs> was, and the flavor was coconut penis? And then uh, Robert California was drinking it it, 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 later in the show, and he's like, "Why did they add the coconut? I loved the original." (laughs) (laughs) Amazing stuff. So anyway, welcome back, (laughs) Joe, and of course Michelle. Looking forward to next hour where we get a trip down horror memory lane. Oh, and I have some fun stuff for us. It's all movies that James Carradine and uh, Cheney were in together oh, and great. some really cool interviews. Awesome. Very cool. All right. And of course, Miles, welcome back to you. And uh, let's talk, uh, let's get submersible here. Um, all righty. Is, are you able to hear me fine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just great. Okay, good. I, I just switched off my push to talk so that I could have my hands free. Gotcha. I do that. But Okay. Uh, so yeah, if you get a double one, Michelle, that's because anyway. All right. So last week I covered the inspiration for the story of the hunt for red October by, uh, the, the late uh, Tom Clancy. Mm-hmm. And it was about, um, a Russian submarine typhoon class, um, nuclear missile cruise missile launching submarine, a, uh, a, a weapon, a first strike capability, yada, yada, yada. So what the typhoon class is it is an oscar class vehicle that is i i if i'm not mistaken it is the largest submarine ever made okay they are it is it is huge it's 500 feet long and 60 feet wide it's 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 the size of a jumbo jet Wow. Just going cruising, cruising underwater. It is a beast of a vehicle. Um, so it was a rich. Um, it, it, it's been in service the the Oscar class for many years. The Soviet Union built them to counter the American power mm-hmm. of the aircraft carrier group. Um. The Russians were never very successful and still to this day are not successful with aircraft carriers. It's just a <laughs> level of technology that eludes <laughs> them. Yeah. And so, th- and so they, you know, they work with what they got. And that was, uh, you know, potent submarines. So they went with the Oscar class. or the, you know, And so the, the story I'm going to talk about is one called The Kursk. All and right. um, the Oscar... Um, had two designations. There's Oscar one and Oscar two. The Oscar two is being the more modern one. The the 
Kursk, there were supposed to be 20 uh, Oscars. Um, that was the plan, to make a, a fleet of 20 of these things. They only got 14 of them completed. Uh, the last six, four were never even laid down, and the last two that were uh, projected to be made, just they stopped mid-build. Mid mm -hmm. And uh, for n a very unsurprising reason... Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, the thing known as the Soviet Union ceased to be. It collapsed yeah. <laughs> in on itself. It just broke up. The Soviet Union had all these satellite states of Latvia and Ukraine was one of them. So it, yeah. it just all fell apart. If anyone's been following the news, the Ukraine's hot on the hot <laughs> in Russia are hot. Oh, yeah. But, uh, that we could have some serious action there, and that would be interesting to talk about, but right now. Uh, so, the Soviet Union broke apart. Now, the reason that it, it broke apart was, was more than um, just these satellite countries breaking away. Essentially, they went broke. All right. And... Uh, a lot of that had to do with how much they spent on their military because they tried to keep up with the Joneses. And, uh, you know, we were pretty, you know, we still shovel obscene amounts of money into the military, even though we don't really have any anybody that is a peer. But there you go. Anyway, so they the Soviet Union collapses. Now, Russia is the main body of the main nation that remains. And so it inherited the lion's share of the military hardware. And this includes the uh, Oscar-class submarines, cruise missiles, and nuclear weapons, and what have you. Now, um, because the breakdown, the collapse of the Soviet Union was economic in nature, um, there had to be Co uh, um, cost cuts uh, across the board, and the military was subjected to significant cuts, especially the Navy. Now, everyone knows that when uh, your vehicle, you know, you periodically do maintenance on it, like you'd go in to have the oil changed and air filters and stuff like that. If you do yeah. not perform these regular maintenances, things tend to go wrong. Well, the same is true for nuclear submarines. No, get out of town. I thought, I, you know, just I, one, one and done, right? I, you would think, you know, <laughs> once you, you know, I've played so many video games where I'm just like, I'm going to build a submarine. And I build a submarine and it works to perfection until it's destroyed in combat. I don't have to worry about its, you know, no. crew not getting paid or parts failing in the middle of the... <laughs> but in, in real life... These are a thing. So, keep. I'm, I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is it's very, very rele relevant to why the Kursk sank. So, the Kursk was the pride of uh, the Russian Navy. It was laid down in 1990, and it was launched in 1994. So... It was put down during the very, very long two, three-year collapse of the Soviet Union. It was launched uh, under Russia. And um, hello, there you go. There, there she is. She's, she's sailing. 
and she was given the nickname. Oh, you're gonna love this. Okay. Unsinkable. Oh boy. What could go wrong with a nickname like Unsinkable? That I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure it was intended. Now, the the thing about Russians, they're very practical people, um, and they 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 solve problems like that. Uh, very. They're bullheaded about it, and so mm-hmm. submarines had a double hull, which isn't a bad thing, but it's just that's it, it meant that there was an outer hull, and then if that failed, there was a hull inside of that, and inside the inner hull were nine sealed compartments. This becomes relevant later. Okay. So the Oscar class, as I said, kid is a nuclear uh, missile carrying submarine it carried 24 missiles that had each had a range of around 350 miles and it also had eight torpedo tubes in its bow four of them were 21 inch four were 26 inch and these things could a a single torpedo from uh this vehicle could carry a warhead easily uh upwards of like six uh 450 kilograms yeah 990 pounds Half a ton. Wow. That's a lot for an explosive for a torpedo because it's designed to just, um, you know, blow up underneath the waterline and cause, you know, hellacious damage. And you'll all recall the story told about the uh, canoe commandos that sent limpet mines with 4.5 kilograms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So nine, half a ton of explosives in these torpedoes. So. Anyway, fast forward to 19... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Nope, we're up to the year 2000 now. So it, was, it had a six-year uh, lifespan. On August 12th of 2000, the Kursk was per, um, uh, participating in a military exercise with the rest of the no Soviet fleet. Uh, this is the Northern fleet. This is the fleet, uh, essentially the Atlantic fleet uh, that, that's out of the north end of Russia, up towards the Polar Sea, the Arctic Sea. Yeah. And the Kursk was one of a few vessels that was permitted to carry its full complement of conventional weapons. So it was packed full of... Uh, goodies let's call them that okay <laughs> so it was it was in the war games it was supposed to fire a torpedo at the uh russian aircraft carrier and uh, this was something that it, it, it there was no warhead on it it was just supposed to fire the torpedo and i don't i i don't know the exact details of the mission but that was what it was supposed to do yeah at eleven twenty nine a.m in an explosion was detected by the Norwegian seismic <laughs> group. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, if you're picking up explosions by your seismic sensors... <laughs> that's, uh, that's that's a biggie. Earthquake stuff. Yeah, that's earthquake detection, detection equipment. So the Norwegians are like, huh, something blew up. <laughs> and uh, and uh, two minutes later, an even larger explosion went off. Yowza. And this explosion was detected over in Alaska. Sarah Payne could it, see it from her house. Yes, it was that big. So <laughs> um 
Now, Russians, as I explained in my uh, segment about talking about that air, air, air jet airliner that went down with 16 admirals. Yeah. are um, They're very proud people. They're very like, nah, nothing could go wrong. Nah, it's not, everything's fine. And so they're, they're, it, it's, the, these explosions are detected. And then at 1.30 p.m., there's still no contact with the submarine. But this still does not, you know, send off red flags throughout the Russian Navy like it's something that they that something was horrendously wrong because, you know, eh. Well, with all of their um, lapses in maintenance on their vehicles and whatnot, uh, you know what? A communication lapse, that wasn't that uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's just like, eh, they'll, they'll, they'll get in contact with us eventually. So it, that's that was this is the mindset of the Russian Navy. And it was not until 10.30 p.m. that the Russian Navy finally pulled their head out of their asses and goes, okay, we got an emergency. And that, you know, because at that point, they're, 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 it's, it, they still hadn't heard from the Kursk. Yeah. So now the, the, the bulk of the Russian uh, Atlantic fleet is now in search mode. They're sending aircraft to try and help find the Kursk. <sighs> Two days later... The um, Russian Navy has said, yes, we have determined, we have found the Kursk. It's at 100 foot, I'm sorry, 100 meters depth. That's 300 feet. (laughs) Uh, uh, Resting on the bottom of the, you know, uh, Arctic Ocean. Uh, uh, And they had said that they had been in contact with the crew and that they were feeding them oxygen. And at the time, President Putin was on vacation down in Sochi, which is a you know a resort place, you know, where you go, you know, when you want to go play golf and have the government pay you to play golf. I'm sorry, that, that's some um, that's another precedent. Um and anyway uh-huh. he's so Putin has a not that there's anything Putin can do, but it, it it was a bad PR for him and his his imagine that. Putin's um, uh, approval rating went down. <laughs> eh, oh well. So by what, like a, a, a tenth of a point? Well, whatever. Whatever Russians were brave enough to voice to whoever was taking the poll. There you go. Well, I'm just what, saying. Uh, I'm just saying that you know the uh, the likelihood of honest uh, you know approval ratings for Putin coming out of I the know. government are pretty low. Fair, fair point. And so. Um, Anyway, there's this, uh, yeah, at two days, they're like, um, yeah, you know, but uh, it was like almost immediately the the, the, the Norwegian and British um, governments offered assistance. You know, like, hey, you've got a submarine down. We're going to, we, you know, we'd like to offer you assistance. But I, as I've mentioned, Russians are stubborn, proud, and they were like, no, we got this. No, no, we're not, we're, you know, they declined all help. And it wasn't until one week later that they the Russian uh, Russians admitted like yeah this is more we can handle we need help mm-hmm. one week yeah okay so uh, the, the the crew was dead by then there was no yeah there was no saving them at this point when they managed to um, get down there they found that um, twenty three of the crew had survived the explosions in the last and the very farthest back of the compartment of the submarine. Um, 
and they had written, uh, you know, some notes explaining uh, what they could, the names of the crew that had survived, and um, that they had decided not to attempt to escape the submarine because they knew that they were so deep underwater that they wouldn't survive the, the, the pressure. Yeah. And two, they had some very uh, misplaced faith that they would be rescued by, the, you know, the, 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 the military. So things start to get to be desperate when you're stuck in a submarine to where your oxygen starts running out. And there is equipment on board that can provide a um, oxygen. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's, 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 it's standard equipment for submarines. And they attempt to repair it and get it functioning again. And in the process, they cause a flash fire. Oh, geez. And that, that sucks up all the oxygen that is remaining. So those um, 23 that did not die of uh, fire and burns died of suffocation uh, pretty quickly after that. You know, they were saying that the water level, it was like waist deep in the last compartment. You know, it was still a lot of water. And so some of them might have dived under the water to avoid the flames, but mm -hmm. when you surface and there's no oxygen, that's that. Yeah. So um, they they hired some Danish um, salvage companies, and the hull of the Kursk was recovered, minus its bow. It had to be cut off, and that's where the explosion happened in the torpedo room. And so after an investigation, it was determined that there was an old torpedo that had leaked some high-grade hydrogen peroxide, which was a fuel for the Ooh. torpedo. And in the leak had managed to get in contact with some kind of a catalyst. And this catalyst caused an explosion. And that was the first explosion that was heard. And afterward, that the the... A, a, one of the other explosions was the conventional warhead going off, or no, the fuel. I'm sorry. There's a there's a kerosene. So hydrogen peroxide detonated and then caused another leak of the kerosene, and the kerosene is another fuel in the torpedo, and that's the bigger explosion. And so that was that. So that was the end of the Kursk. So it, it's uh, kind of ironic that the Kursk uh, sounds a lot like the curse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it, it is. Um, so the military brass that were in charge, there was some serious um, punishments doled out to the um, people in charge that obviously, I, I, you know, I don't know what, what they could have done. I mean, when you cut funding to the point where your sailors aren't even getting paid and you're not performing regular maintenance, something's bound to go wrong. But yeah. because heads had to roll and it couldn't be Putin or the, or the Communist Party, it had to be somebody. And so, you know, they, they, they had their kangaroo court and, uh, you know, they, they had whoever uh, out. Uh, responsible. So the captain got the order of the Kremlin or whatever, and the crew got the order of courage for their for their bravery and, and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, that, that was the end of the Kursk. Uh, so I do have a little bit of time left, and I do wish I have some other things to discuss that are science. Woo! Let's talk okay. science. So, uh, um, earlier this month, uh, in uh, or maybe even this week, the 
Oh, I love that. Thank you, dear. The, 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 the guy's walking in the canoe underwater. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, uh, France, you know, there is technology being worked on to create fusion power. And this is different than fission. Fission is the Mm -hmm. uh, splitting of atoms of uh, nuclear material, plutonium, uranium, etc. Fusion is the melding or or joining of atoms to create something else, like hydrogen being molded together to make helium, which is what our sun does. Our sun's a huge fusion generator. And there was a uh, moment when their test equipment created energy. Now, a fusion generator, how it works is there's a huge amount of energy that is poured into the generator. And what is necessary is a a state called ignition. And that is when you get sustainable energy coming back out. So you're superheating uh, plasma, you know, and um, the fuel to create plasma, to create the the, the hydrogen and helium. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to get a sustained reaction to get more energy out. And they succeeded with a five-second sustained fusion reaction. A whole five seconds. Wow. Which is two and a half times longer than one that they managed to do 20 years ago. And they got 59 megajoules of energy um, out of this uh, fusion reactor, which in uh, terms of... uh, that, that the layman can understand is a, about the same energy as a fully loaded 18 wheeler traveling at about a hundred miles per hour. Wow. I'm sorry, d- double that. So that's uh, yay. Science where we're, I mean, what will, will we see fusion energy in our lifetimes? Possibly that's possible. And um, will it solve all our world's problems? It'll solve a lot of them because it's clean energy, relatively speaking, compared to the the fossil fuel, to be sure. And fusion is not like nuclear. It's not breaking stuff apart, making more radioactive stuff. It's hydrogen and helium. So Mm -hmm. it's relatively speaking, that's better. Now, one other uh, science bit of news I'm going to touch on before I end my segment. And that has to do with the James Webb Space Telescope. Nice. We got our first picture back. From the James Webb uh, telescope, I have, and I'm going to post it. Boop, boop. There we go. Ta-da. Should be coming up. Okay. Actually, might be. it might be too big. <laughs> I apologize. I see. It's there. It came up. All right. Cool. So this, what you're looking at is the image that the James Webb sent back. And that is a picture of one star. I know okay. what you're looking. You're looking at it, and you're going, "How can that be one star?" So, everyone, remember that the James Webb Telescope has 18 individual mirrors. Yeah, that's what you're looking at. These mirrors are all misaligned and creating, you know, unfocused, and they're creating 18 separate little images to um, uh, create the image that you're seeing by, by, by the detector. And so what's happening, what they have to do is they assign each of these images to a certain mirror once they start making adjustments, and then they know which image is which mirror, and then they can start changing it all around until they get 
it all nice and orderly, and they know which image is goes to what mirror. And so the goal is to change the James Webb telescope from looking like this big mess into something cohesive and exciting that looks like that. That's the goal. So that's the news that's happened with the James Webb telescope. It's all exciting. It's, and, uh, it's working though. Yay. Yes. yes, it's working. So they're communicating with it and it's nice. extreme stuff. So there you go. All Update right. on the James Webb telescope. All right. So yeah, so basically what they have to do is they have to uh, they have to configure it. Yes, the time to yes, they're uh, uh, they're angling the mirrors so that uh, each image comes to a certain the same exact point, so mm -hmm. that instead of creating multiple smaller images, you create one more power. So this is so they're looking at a, obviously a bright star. Yeah. So what they want to do with this telescope is look way back, way to very dim things, and the really the only way to get a good picture of something that's dim. Is like a just like a camera. You hold the shutter open, and you gather yeah. in as many photons as you can. Same principle. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, very cool. Thank you for that, Miles. But uh, yeah, yep, yep. it is. It is time for us to go to the break. Uh, and when we come back, Michelle again walk down horror memory lane. Yes, one my sinus. Oh, up. One moment, I gotta shut off my. Push oh. talk. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, and uh, of course, uh, yes, I, I understand your sinus woes. They, I got them too. But uh, yeah, we'll be right back, and Michelle will uh, talk about a couple of our February birthdays: uh, one Lon Chaney Jr. and one John Carradine. Yep, yep. Horror royalty. We'll be right back. <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited. A foolish hunter. Something evil. Yeah! I can see it! Not recommended for impressionable children. Dark. I don't know if anybody caught what that was from. That was from the end of, of Mice and Men starring Burgess Meredith and, of course, Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Jr., yes. I can see it, George. I can see it. Bang. Mercy killing. Uh, yeah. So, what a great movie. What a, what, what a powerhouse uh, duo in that movie. So, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you, Miles, for uh, the, uh, the 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 new submarine story. Well, new to us, submarine story. Yeah, yep, yep. And the science updates, and of course, Joe. Very much looking forward to uh, talking about uh, another Italian American Joe later on in the show. Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, lots of good stuff there. And uh, but for the uh, time being, we've got. Uh, the better part of an hour to talk about 
uh, two super famous uh, names in horror. So, Michelle, why don't you set this up for us? Okay, but I do want to say that as a person that shares the birthday and the birth state of James Spader, go us February eight, uh, February seventh birthdays! Yay! Yay! Very cool. So he was uh, born in uh, where was he born in? Um, he was born in Boston. Boston I was born right. on the west side of Massachusetts, but oh, okay, hey, we share the cool. same state. So there you go. Very nice. <laughs> Okay. But yeah, uh, so we have two amazing horror stars, John Carradine and Lon Chaney Jr. Um, let's talk about Carradine first. Sure. Although, you know, he's only older than Lon Chaney by five days. Wow. Yes. So um, yeah, John Carradine, he was born February 5th, 1906 in New York, New York. He was the son of a reporter, artist, and a surgeon. He grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York. He attended Christ Church School and Graphics Art School, studying sculpture, and afterwards roamed the South selling sketches. Huh. He made his acting debut in Camille in a New Orleans theater in 1925. He arrived in Los Angeles in 1927, and he worked in local theaters. He applied for a job as a scene designer to Cecil B. DeMille, wow. rejected his designs, but gave him voice work in several films. Because John Kerry has a very uh, iconic voice. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, his on-screen debut was in uh, Tobel David in 1930. He was billed as Peter Richmond. He, uh, he was a protege, a close uh, friend of John Barrymore. Um, he was an extremely, he has an extremely prolific uh, uh, film character actor um, while also simultaneously maintaining a stage career in classic leading roles such as Hamlet and Malvolio. Wow. In his later years, he was typed as a horror star, putting in appearances in many low and ultra low budget horror films. Yeah, there he never he never saw a, a horror film that he he didn't he didn't take. However, <laughs> there's an interesting story. He was actually going to be in Frankenstein. Really? Yeah, but he didn't like the idea of the makeup and the live cast. You know, the the plaster live casting. He's like, once he saw that, he knew what he was in for. He said, nope, and he walked out. Okay. Um, he um, uh, he's a member of the group of actors often used by director John Ford, who became known as the John Ford Stock Company. He died eighty-two of natural causes um, on November twenty-seventh, nineteen eighty-eight. Now, what's interesting about John Carradine? Um, he is the father of Chris Carradine, David Carradine, Keith Carradine, and Robert Carradine. He's adopted father of Bruce Carradine. He's the grandfather of Martha Plimpton, Ever Carradine, and Kansas Carradine. I did not know Martha Plimpton was a Carradine. She is. Yep. Very cool. Um, out of all of the roles he's ever played, he ranked his performance in Bluebeard in 1944 among his career favorites. Okay, that's it. Um, he also, 
What? That's a good one. Yeah, it is. It's very cool. Um, he claimed near the end of his life to have appeared in more movies than any other actor, surpassing the record set by Donald Crisp, the Oscar award-winning actor and director who starred in silent movies and appeared in numerous one and two real films, most of them lost. The title for actor who appeared in the most films is likely a contest between Carradine, more than 300 films, and Crisp, at least 170 known films. Wow. Of the contemporary generation, Christopher Lee, who has acted in more, in more films than his peers, over 200, does not come close to matching Carradine's output. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so he, he a spectacular career. A lot of the stuff he was in were stinkers, but they're still fun to watch. You know, I think his voice and uh, and his presence kind of adds a little bit of um, appeal to them. Because mm-hmm. you because you think about it, you know, it, 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 he was earning a paycheck. So you know, if you want to earn a paycheck, do whatever you like to do, even if it's a crappy movie. Have fun with it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll go on to a little bit of backstory on Lon Chaney, because a lot of the stuff I have has both of them in it. And uh, so uh, we will play the clips and stuff I've picked for them after this. Okay. Uh, um, Lon Chaney Jr. was born February 10th, 1906, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, he was a, uh, character actor whose career was influenced, uh, and unfortunately often overshadowed by his father. Um, cause his father was a silent film star, Lon Chaney. Um, the younger Chaney was born while his parents were on a theatrical tour and he joined them on stage for the first time at the age of six months. Wow. Um, as a young man, even during the time of his father's growing fame, um, his his name was actually Creighton Cheney. He worked a lot of menial jobs to support himself because he didn't want to call upon his father's money and that sort of thing. He wanted yeah. to be independent. Um, at various times, he was a plumber, a meat cutter's apprentice, a metal worker, and a farm worker. Interesting. Always, um, there was a desire to follow in his father's footsteps. He studied makeup at his father's side, learning many of the techniques that made his father famous. He took stage roles in a lot of stock companies. It was not until his father's death that he went to work in films. Um, his first appearance was underneath his real name. Um, he had been named for his mother's, uh, his mother's singer, uh, his, his mother, a singer, Francis Cheney. He played numerous supporting parts before a producer in 1935 insisted on changing his name to Lon Chaney Jr. as a marketing ploy. See, he was, he was his father's shadow even then because they wanted mm-hmm. that name on their pictures because yeah. people still remembered him from the silent film days and such. Um, he was very uncomfortable with that and always hated the junior. Yeah. But um, he knew that the name could help him in his career, so he kept it. Um, yeah, so he, he didn't, you know, his breakout role was as you, you placed, uh, you played the clip earlier of Mice and Men in 1939. Um, he did a beautiful job in that role. Very touching, very, uh, uh, very emotional. And Mm -hmm. I, I, God, I hate that. I hate that story. It makes me so sad. (laughs) 
It, it really is a bummer. <laughs> it is. And it's been done so many times. Um, and every time I've seen it done, it makes me cry. It, it, reading yeah. the story, first of all, because we have it in our one of our uh, science fiction collections. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really, uh, I, I actually like the one with uh, Gary Sinise and uh, John Malkovich quite a bit, too. Yeah, but every time I see it, it just makes me cringe. I just, oh, I, 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 I hate the, I hate the feeling of, you know, having something in your grasp and knowing what you can do, and then it's gone again. You know, yeah. from going from nothing to something, and then having it vanish. To me, it's like you know, uh, Alzheimer's. Yeah. You have to, you know, or dementia. You know, you have to feel like you know that's that's the feeling that these people must have in their head, even though they can't voice it. You know, mm-hmm. there's something that's gone from their lives. They knew something, and then it's completely gone. Yeah, I I almost think it's better just to stay the, the you know the 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 ignorant person at that point. You know, you know, it's better to not know what you're missing. Yeah, I I get where you're coming from. Um. So then he went on to play the uh, tortured Lawrence Talbert in The Wolfman in 1941. Um. He was, but the problem is he never really surpassed his father. He always lived underneath that shadow. I mean, he was um, in a lot of movies as character actors. I mean, he was in High Noon in 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never saw him as versatile as his father. Uh, and the problem is that that made him fall into more cheap and mundane uh, movies, which basically just traded on his name. And those of the other horror, uh, fading horror stars of the, the the day, you know, but Lugosi had the same problem. Yeah. Um, he's later years. Uh, he was uh, having a lot of problems with illness and alcohol. Um, he died with the, from a variety of causes in 1973, um, but it was as an actor who spent his life chasing the fame of his father. How? That's. That's got to be really sad, you know, yeah, that's, to, that's difficult. To, for people to remember you that way. And I love him. I thought he was spectacular. Yeah. And, you know, he and his father were, I mean, the, the only thing similar that uh, about them really is the, the kinds of, you know, the roles that they were getting. But that that's about it. I mean, they were very different uh, as individuals and actors. Yeah, um, he actually attempted an early career as a songwriter. That never went anywhere. Um, But he does have some very interesting credits to his name. He's the only person to have played all four of the classic movie monsters. Very cool. He played the Wolfman in 1941. Uh, He played Frankenstein's monster and the ghost of Frankenstein in 1942. He played Karis the Mummy in The Mummy's Tomb in 1942. And he played the son of Dracula. You count Anthony Alicard in Son of Dracula, 1943. Nice. Um, he's actually pictured on one of a set of five uh, stamps, U.S. postage stamps, issued in uh, September 1977 on the 30th. Uh that celebrates famous movie monsters. He's shown as the Wolfman, which of course is his big iconic role. Everybody remembers him for that. Yeah. Um, the other people that show up on those is his father, Lon Chaney, as a Phantom of the Opera, Bella Lugosi as Dracula, and Boris Karl- Karloff on two stamps as both the Mummy and Frankenstein. 
I have a set of those stamps. Oh, you lucky, lucky person. <laughs> I have the, the, they're later though. I got mine are from the eighties. Yeah. I'm probably, they probably recycle them every now and then just to, mm -hmm. just, just to show them. Um, he, uh, Broderick Crawford, who played with Cheney, uh, who played Cheney's role of Lenny in of Mice and Men on Broadway in 1937, worked with Cheney at one time. They shared a dressing room. Apparently, both men were such heavy drinkers <laughs> that they would get drunk together and take turns <laughs> beating each other up. Oh, wow. <laughs> Talk about weird, huh? That's a fun night. <laughs> yeah, um, um, he uh, he developed skills as a makeup artist as well, but he was not able to use those skills because of strict union rules. Wow. And um, in August 1951, Lon Chaney appeared on the popular ABC television series, You Asked For It, hosted by Art Baker. He discussed his late father's movie career, revealing how the man of a thousand faces drew inspiration from American Sign Language as both of his parents were deaf. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah, that. So that, that. Yeah, that helps out a lot when, you, when you're trying to portray stuff in, you know, silent pictures. Yeah. So. I would say. Um, but what's, what's interesting about Lon Chaney Jr.? Um, you know, we know him as the monster. We know him as a werewolf. We know him as, as, as this, this smaller character actor. But do you know... He has an amazing singing voice. I did not know this. That'd be clip one. Thou art my baby, my sweet baby. Thou hast me knocked out. Thou art a swell dear. How he fell me. Why keep me locked out? Always locked out. With arms akimbo. Thou hast the thimbo. Out on a limbo, does consider that small. Of what it takes, can she take it? Thou hast a low dear, why not forsake it? Please forsake it. Love all the more dear, all the more dear. Come take the head down, get in and bear down. Don't be high hat. Be the invincible baby thou art. Thou art my baby. There you go. That was one Mr. Lon Chaney Jr., 28 years old, singing Thou Art My Baby from the 1934 movie Girl of My Dreams. Wow. Never knew. It's a pretty cool voice, though. He had a nice little voice, especially kind of acapella there with just the, the piano behind him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And he was a cutie. Oh, my. <laughs> Handsome devil. Yes, he was. Um. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, any comment? What? Uh, no, no. I just think that's really fascinating. That's very cool that you dug that up because I never would have pegged him as a singer at all. Neither would I. I, j I was looking for some very interesting clips and stuff on him, and I found that. I was like, oh, we've just got to have that because, you know, he he's adorable, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so but you're right, though. He was he was quite a, a devilish, uh, devilishly good-looking uh, young man. 
Yeah, he fit right in with that crew. That that sort of uh, and 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 he was he and at the end of that, when you hear the laughter and stuff like that, that his professor comes back into the room, breaks up the song, and he just kind of like you know looks at him and runs on out. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So um, yeah. So we have we have uh, Lon Chaney. He has some amazing amazing props, and then we have Mister John Carradine. Um, now John Carradine amazing prolific actor even though some of the films he was in a lot of the films he was in were kind of like just making ends meet but he had an interview on a show called uh the the horror hall of fame a monster salute i sold that vhs copy to somebody a few months ago very nice yeah yeah so uh ready go ahead yeah yeah it's a one-time uh a show that was done uh for tv um, 1974, and he was interviewed by none other than my favorite actor in the world, Vincent Price. And here is the first part where he's discussing the originations of horror with Vincent Price. The distinguished Mr. John Carradine. John, lovely to see you again. Nice to see you, Vinny. Thank you. In a long time. It has been a long time. I think the last time we saw each other was in a film which, while it was not a horror film, was certainly a horror. Yes, it was a long one, that's for sure. John, you know, you have been connected with the classics and with horror films, but I think one of the fascinating things to go back into is the the background of horror in the theater. Tell us a little bit about it. It goes a long way back. Yes. I did one of those original horror plays on Broadway with Elizabeth Bergner. What was that? The Duchess of Malfi, oh, John Webster, her contemporary of Shakespeare. And the whole Jacobean theater actually was based on horror and revenge. And then, of course, uh, there's always a little touch of the Grand Guignol, too, yes. which helps a bit. <laughs> yes, it does. A few heads rolling on the floor. Never heard a picture before. <laughs> I think uh, one of the most fascinating ones was a surrealist film, really, that went way beyond its time. Uh, Twenty years later, you know, I met the man who played in it, Conrad Fight. He came up to the door one time to ask his way somewhere, and I nearly fainted. <laughs> it was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There you go. Yes, very, very cool movie. So um, it's, a, it's a silent piece, so I didn't include that part of the clip in there because all you hear is music. <laughs> so. Yeah. Doesn't make for the uh, the most uh, stunning uh, radio. Um, do you want to play the next clip, or shall we just wait until we come back? Uh, yeah, we can go ahead and play the next one. Okay, the next one is about John Carradine and um, uh, John Barrymore. John Barrymore was a silent film actor, amazingly expressive man. Of course, he created the Barrymore Empire. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, talent. Uh, stem from him but John Barrymore was a very interesting person and John Carradine has a funny story about that there you go. tell us something about John Barrymore who was a great friend of yours I only met him once and I've always been yeah, jealous of you oh yeah well you know he had his own sense of the macabre yes he owned a vulture which he bought in Chile or in Peru Peru I think it was and he used to sit on a perch in his home up on Tower Road yeah and they would sit together nose to nose. But I more thought it was love. Until it went on the wagon. And then the vulture would have nothing to do with it. You see? It was his alcoholic breath the vulture relaxed. I like He was a magnificent actor. His Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was uh, a, a performance I'll never forget. You won't know makeup. 
He did, wore no makeup wig. at all. Only a wig. gave him a kind of conical head when he didn't wear any makeup. It was all done by facial expression. Here, look. See, there he is now. He's taking the drink. <clears throat> I used to rehearse this when I was 12 years old with a glass of water and vinegar and some uh, soda bicarbonate. I'd foam up and take the potion and go through all the agony. Oh, I've been reading about Mansfield doing it. It's divine. Now, let's see what he does here. He really, the hands, of course, played an enormous part, didn't they? You know, he had short, stubby fingers, and he hated them. He was always dangling them so they'd look long and artistic. That's true, because <laughs> you'd never know that, would you? No, like the way he was tremendous, though. Look at the face. <sighs> it's all, there's no makeup. No. That's awesome. <laughs> it's very cool, the vulture hole thing. You know, once he, once he went on the wagon, the vulture didn't want anything to do with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I just thought it was so funny. And, you know, Vincent Price and, and John Carradine work very well together. And they yeah. actually were never really in a horror film together until they did House of Long Shadows. Yeah, I remember you talking about that before. That Yeah. Yeah, because that has all, that has a the, the whole, that has John Carradine, that has Vincent Price, that has Christopher Lee, that has Peter Cushing. You know? yeah. So there you go. Great stuff. Awesome. So, uh, all right. Well, I think we should probably uh, head to the break right now. Um, and uh, we do have a new uh, mythical moment from uh, our good friend Adam Hebert. Let me just make sure I've got the right one. Uh, this one is episode Yippee. 29. So, uh, there we go. So, let's go ahead and go to the break. Check out what Adam has to say on mythology. And when we come back, we'll get more into... Lon Chaney Jr. and John Carradine. I had no idea they were so close in age. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So I guess you, since we didn't get to see Lon Chaney Jr. grow super old like John Carradine, I guess we always kind of maybe think of him as younger, right? Right, yeah, but he's actually, yeah, it's, it's, so he's it's not that much younger. It's <laughs> just five yeah. days. There you go. Five whole days. All right, we'll be right back with lots more. It came from Cleveland right after this. For Raider for Humans and It Came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert with Mythical Moment 29, Odysseus meets Polyphemus. The eye has it. Greek mythology has many fascinating and frightening monsters. While originally the Cyclopes were three sons of Gaia and Oranos who helped the Olympians in the war against the Titans, the idea of large, one-eyed, savage men also terrified the ancient Greeks, as evidenced in the story from the Odyssey by Homer. After a long ten-year war against the city-state of Troy, covered in the Iliad, Odysseus and his men finally sailed for their home in Greece, Ithaca. All the men had lies back home but Odysseus most of all wanted to turn home to his wife and son, who by then was ten years of age. But the way home was long and arduous, and Odysseus had many adventures, even before he came upon a mysterious island. In desperate need of supplies, and, well, a little shore leave, Odysseus and his men left their ship and explored the island, coming upon a cave full of provisions. The men and their leader helped themselves to some of the food, which was oddly in much larger proportions than typical. Eventually, the owner of the cave, the one-eyed giant Polyphemus, returned home from a day of grazing his flock of sheep. Rather than abide by the traditions of how one treats guests, 
The giant instead quickly scooped up two of the men and ate them whole before blocking the entrance to the cave with a giant boulder and settling in for a good night's sleep. As Polyphemus was the only one capable of moving the stone, Odysseus couldn't end the threat of this giant, and so he couldn't help but watch as this was repeated the next morning, with the giant eating another two men for his breakfast before leaving the cave with his flock and taunting his captives about their fate when he returned. He quickly blocked the entrance, sealing the soldiers in. As Homer repeatedly said in both of his great works, Odysseus was the most clever and quick-witted of the Greeks. And even in the dark of the cave, with what little light they could make, Odysseus had come up with a plan, finding what to the giant was a mere stake, but to the men a giant spear or battering ram, Odysseus worked on sharpening the stake to a sharp point and hardening it in some fire. They then hit it. Polyphemus returned and ate two more of the men. Odysseus offered the giant some of their wine if he would just spare him and the remaining Ithacans. Polyphemus took the wine, which was undiluted, and laughed at them. Soon, he was actually pretty drunk, and in his stupor, he asked Odysseus his name, promising a guest gift if he answered. And so Odysseus did, giving the name nobody. The giant said that his gift would be to be the last who was eaten, and with that, the giant fell into a deep, drunken sleep. Wasting no time, Odysseus had his men fetch the sharpened stake from its hiding place. It took everyone they had left, but they managed to shove it into the eye of the giant, blinding him. Polyphemus howled in pain, and when the other giants who called the island their home answered and asked if everything was okay, Polyphemus told them nobody had hurt him. They assumed he was just either joking around or was being punished by the gods for one transgression or another, and they did not come to his aid. The next morning, the giant groped around his cave and managed to unblock the entrance to it in order to let his sheep out. But he wasn't a fool. Each of the animals as they exited the cave, planning to crush or eat anything that wasn't sheep-like. Clever Odysseus, however, had come up with a plan. Having tied everyone including himself to the underside of the sheep, and so they passed undetected. The men undid the ropes tying themselves to the sheep and made for their ship. As they left the island, Odysseus gave in to his hubris. He turned back and called out to Polyphemus, saying that he wasn't nobody. He said Polyphemus had been beaten by Odysseus of Ithaca. Enraged, Polyphemus hurled boulders at the ship even though he was blind, managing to miss it only just barely. As the Greeks sailed away, the giant, on his hands and knees, turned his gaze to the heavens and cried for his father to see to it that he got his revenge. That's right, folks. Polyphemus was the child of a god. Poseidon, god of the seas and father of Polyphemus, would see to it that his son was avenged. Odysseus would not see his home again, not if Poseidon had his way. For Radio for Humans and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert reminding you that your mothers were right when they told you it was all fun and games until someone loses an eye. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks, Alexander.
Well, there's no law against dropping dead. I guess not. <laughs> Welcome back to the program, uh, everybody. Uh, hello there, Miles. Or uh, he's AFK. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Joe, welcome back to you, sir. Hello. And uh, looking forward to that Joe Pesci segment uh, next hour. Very exciting. And uh, but in the interim, let's go ahead and jump right back into uh, two horror icons, John Carradine and Lon Chaney Jr. Where All are we right, going for next? this Yep. For this segment, I actually chose pictures that they all appeared in. They, they both appeared in together. Nice. Um, they are not the iconic movies that everybody thinks about, but they are the, when they're Universal's trying to continue to uh, keep the monsters alive. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're they, they've been milking these for a while now. <laughs> so we have uh, the first film is actually uh, it's 1944's The House of Frankenstein. All right, here you go. <laughs> to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. The uh, juggler vein is severed, not cut, but torn apart as though by powerful teeth. A werewolf. Last night I killed a man. I didn't know what you were doing. But I did. I wanted to kill. I think they're after Dracula. Love those epic uh, ends to those trailers. The big. Symphony. I like the music. The music's mm -hmm. very classic. When you hear that music, you know what you're you're listening to. Yeah. And Definitely. what's 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 fun about this film is, as, as I said, it's it's when Universal's trying to keep these movies alive. It's trying to keep the characters of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. you know, which they, you know, and Dracula and you know the Mummy and all these guys. They're and the and the Wolfman, but. You know they're they're struggling. Yeah. And uh, in this movie, um, you have John Carradine plays the the Dracula character. You have uh, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Pl playing the Wolfman. And what's funny is uh, Peter Coe is one of the other actors in this movie, and he played scenes with um, uh, uh, John Carradine. And the problem was. Um, as he said in an interview, Peter Cove was talking about how Carradine always found ways to upstage him and steal the scene. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 
Um, even back, you know, even back then, you know, John Kerry, he loved the spotlight. So, um, so, and they actually, uh, um, he, he and, uh, and Carradine got into it on, on, you know, off the set. And he's like, you know, look, you know, if it happens again, you know, I, I, Co actually threatened Carradine, you you know, stop, stop it, stop hamming it up, you know, stop trying to, you know, be a scene hog. Um, and it, Carradine took it to heart and he became a little more cooperative and prof- professional. Yeah. Because, you know, you have your scenes and you're supposed to be the, the center of that scene. If the other actors, you know, stealing your, 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 your light, you know, that, that sucks. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, um, you got to play nice. Yeah, one of the other stars in the in the movie is Elena Verdogo, and um, she got along really, really well with Lon Chaney Jr. during the filming, and they got along so well that in between takes, they would be chatting to each other while enjoying drinks. <laughs> <laughs> she said that he it, actually Lon Chaney Jr. was the easiest person on that set to get along with. Uh, Boris Karloff kept more to himself. And was uh, described as being aloof. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and and of all the five Wolfman movies featuring Lon Chaney Jr., this is the only one that does not feature the Wolfman's growl or howl. They say hmm. it might have been there, but if it was, it was drowned out so badly by Hans uh, uh, Sattler's music that, that nobody could hear it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Somebody was jerking jerking around in the the mixing room. <laughs> yeah, they didn't they, they they didn't add the sound very well. Well, that's so a, the next that's a shame. Yeah, it is. It's it you know because that, that's a classic sound for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the next movie we have is uh, 1945's House of Dracula. Yet another way to get the monsters all into one film. <laughs> See before you a man who lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf with only one desire, to kill. I tried to perform the miracle of science and failed. My blood is contaminated with the blood of Dracula. Again, that triumphant music at the end, always so cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Most of the ones from this 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 era did have those. A lot of the nineteen forties uh, films, and I, I like that. The only problem is you have to find the right ones because most of them are not fit to even air for the radio because it's just music. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You have to find the ones with the actual speaking roles in them. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, Lon Chaney Jr. here um, was at the end of his uh, his uh, contract with uh, Universal Studios. Yeah. Um, which was in 1940 with Man Made Monster and uh, in 1941. Um, John Carradine would go on to play Dracula on stage. Um, once in, in, in on television at uh, Matinee, Matinee's Theater, Dracula, 1956. Okay. And then two more features, Billy the Kid versus Dracula, nice. 1966, and Nocturna in 1979. You know, that, that uh, uh, what was the Billy the Kid one called? Uh, Dracula versus Billy, Billy the, the Kid, kid. versus Dracula. Okay, that... that- uh, that was the movie that Ed Wood wanted to make with uh, Bella Lugosi with the Ghoul Goes West. Uh, he he he'd been planning on a movie like that, but obviously, you know, I don't think it was a super unique idea. Everybody kind of wanted to do genre bending movies back back in the day. You know, of course, they had like Abbott and Costello uh, with the monsters and everything, and then of course, you know, they would they do the you know Western Three Stooges episodes and things like that. So. Uh, it, it it also got revitalized uh, in the eighties and nineties when they started doing a lot of the va- uh, vampire fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a lot of things where where Quincy Adam Quincy from the uh, Dracula actually survived or was actually turned into a vampire and yeah. survived and came back to the Wild West or where Dracula ends up in the Wild West because it's the new frontier and nobody's going to know him out there. Mm-hmm. So they did a lot of that as well as short stories and novelettes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, uh, but yeah, so that, you know, I bet when that movie came out, Ed Wood was probably pretty jealous. I bet he would be. I that would have been great with Bella Lugosi in that role. Mm-hmm. That would have been fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not long after filming this movie, um, Lon Chaney Jr. was notified by the studio that his contract would not be renewed. That stinks because, you know, he started doing a lot of low budget stuff after that. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, trying to get into the trying to keep up, you know, with theater and stuff. And he Mm -hmm. just he just the alcoholism and other health concerns really started to hit. Yeah, um, by the time you got to see him in that, that stinker Dracula versus Frankenstein, um, he he couldn't even speak. So his role was, you know, he would play a mute in that movie yeah. because of all of his health problems. And he looked terrible in that movie, too. Um, and he died way too young. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, he did other movies like The, the Indestructible Man, uh, which was a pretty bad low-budget stinker. Uh, I think that got played. Didn't Joe? Did that get played on Sven Gulli? The indestructible what was the man. Name? The indestructible what was the name man. Of the indestructible man. I'm not sure if that was on. You know, that might have been on Big Bad B movie show. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. Cleveland one. I don't know. Was that the one where he gets? That was one one where he gets in a bus crash. Uh, I thought it was the one where he was put on death row or something like that. And then okay. ended up coming back to life. Um, but anyway. okay. I'm uh, thinking of another movie. Yeah. So the uh, indestructible man was 1956. Um, yeah. Executed murderer brought back to life by scientists. Uh, yeah. So, but, um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Michelle. 
Um, this is also the only film in which Lon Chaney Jr.'s character, Lawrence Talbert, sports a mustache. Oh, yeah? It's just a, it's just a, Philly, a little silly bit of trivia that I thought I'd put in there. Um, so uh, most of the sets for this Universal movie were filmed with low lighting. The reason for this? Guess. Budgetary constraints? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they did not want to sink too much money into this movie because I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure they realized at this point that things were being petered out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was right. Indestructible Man was on Spanguli last November 13th. So, All right, Spanguli. Yeah. But, uh, cool uh, movie. Yeah, and, uh, it, but that, that movie is a stinker. It's, it's good, yeah. but it's bad. Um, but anyway, all right. Uh, but I'm sorry, I don't mean to uh, tread too too much into your segment. Uh, but we got a couple more, a uh, couple more clips to play. Yes, we do. The next one is 1944's "The Mummy's Ghost." What a great title! thief that killed Ben, Mrs. Evans, and nothing human tore through that wall. I'll take her back, Harris. Together we're going to our camp. I swear it. You can't go in that swamp. It's certain death. Let go of me. triumph of music at the end of that one too <laughs> yep yep and that's that yeah as i said it's it, it's iconic um now the mummy's ghost was fraught with a little bit of trouble oh yeah um yeah uh in the scene where karis trashes the scripts museum lon cheney jr drove his fist through real glass oh gosh it was supposed to be breakaway glass, but the prop man forgot to replace it before shooting started, and a shard of it flew up and cut him through his mummy mask on his chin. Oof. In the scene, you can see the mummy bleeding, and it's real blood. Wow. That stinks. Yeah. Um, and they, they said, although there are there are rumors that Lon Chaney uh, scenes in The Mummy were used doubles, um, the director uh, stated, no, Chaney did his own scenes in the film. So, Okay. And a third interesting tidbit about this is, um, according to the director, <laughs> in a 1989 interview, Lon Chaney as Karis got so... Uh, caught up in the scene in which he strangles Frank Re Riker. Mm -hmm. Though Chaney blocks the camera from picking up Riker's reaction, the veteran actor was moaning and exclaimed, he nearly killed me. According to Laborg, 
Rikers was a veteran and didn't make a formal complaint, but the next day, the director noticed his neck visibly bore, uh, showed bruises. Oh, God. That's not good. Yes, they, yeah, they got, they got a little carried away, you know, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's one of the earlier movies, so, you know, it was before uh, Cheney's career started to take its nosedive, mm-hmm. but, you know, you can take method acting only so far, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, you know, leaving bruises on somebody's neck might be a, a bridge too far. Right, so the last, mo- the last movie trailer we have was a uh, a later movie in which Lon Chaney did come back for. Um, I, I don't think it was a universal flick, but it has mm-hmm. a lot of familiar faces in it. It's Lon Chaney Jr., has Carradine, and also has that big guy. I forget his name, the Tor guy. Tor Johnson. Yeah, Tor Johnson, yes. And uh, it's called The Black Sleep from 1956. Beyond any terror ever known, The Black Sleep. It wakes the dead. Five of the screen's greatest horror thrill stars, Basil Rathbone, Akim Tamirov, Lon Chaney, John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, and these beautiful women in their power. (laughs) Pass through a madman's hellfire. Enter an ancient abbey's secret passage into the most terrifying tortured dungeon from the medieval past. Shocking victims of a famous brain specialist gone berserk. Plunging you into a reign of terror. That's cerebral fluid. But that means this man is alive. Yes, alive. This is criminal. Monstrous. Mungo! Why not use her? Put her on the black sleep. Take her up to surgery at once. A horror beyond belief. Feeding on beauty. <laughs> Lusting to claw the world apart. One of Bella Lugosi's final roles as well. Yeah, it was, they say it was the uh, last completed film project of actor Bella Lugosi. So um, it's it's a cool movie. It's got a lot of great mm-hmm. names in it. You know, Basil Rathbone. <laughs> you yeah. can't beat him, really. I love him too. You know, one one of the great Sherlock Holmes, in in my opinion. But yeah, I think uh, when I did the Bella Lugosi uh, show um, last last year. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was his last completed film role, but his last speaking role was in uh, Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster. Right. So, and he was planning on, and I think he was planning on The Ghoul Goes West after uh, he got out of rehab. Well, that's why I had to include this film because it's got you know it's it's yeah. got you know it's got the greats in it. So um, Peter Laurie was supposed to be in this film, but um, his his salary demands were too excessive for the limited budget because mm. this film was a twelve day shooting schedule was budgeted for two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's uh, pretty low even for those the 
back in the day. Yeah, for 1956, for that the, that cast, too. Good Lord. Um, but, yeah, so, um, and another funny thing about it, the hands that are performing the brain operation in this movie are actually that of a real neurosurgeon at Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in Los Angeles. They were hired by the producers to make the operation look authentic. Wow. Can you imagine that's your one acting credit? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's wild. That's wild. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was speaking of Peter Lorre. There, I, I just realized, and I can't remember the not, name of the song, but we were listening to, to Yacht Rock in the car the other day, and I didn't realize there's, there's a song that mentions Peter Lorre. And, and oh, if Susan's listening, she'll let me know what it is. Uh, but there's a line about, have you ever wandered through a crowd contemplating a crime like Peter Laurie or something like that. Um, well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to have to ask her what it is on the break, and I'll find out. But uh, in, in uh, she is listening, but there's a delay. So, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, the black sleep, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, that, that movie – just you know they they because they didn't give uh, John Carradine speaking lines in that either did they? Yes, they did. Kind of. Oh, they he did. He was the beggar. He was the beggar-looking guy, the really long-haired uh, guy with the crutch that was beating beating the people over the head with it at, at oh, one point. Okay. And he actually had some speaking parts. Yes. Okay, so it was Lugosi and somebody else did not have speaking roles, um, but uh, Tor Johnson probably didn't. <laughs> Yeah, so. he just like grunted a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, th you know there you, you had to be pretty brave to give uh, Tor Johnson speaking roles uh, and things uh, because I mean we uh, we all well and of course Tor Johnson is, is responsible for uh, uh, from the unearthly with John Carradine is responsible for this line which uh, Susan and I named our show after. Time for go to bed. That's Tor Johnson. Yes. So, uh, yeah, the unearthly, that was a year of the cat. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the song year of the cat, uh, mentions Peter Laurie in it. Uh, and that song was by, uh, I can't remember who did the song now. Uh, Al Stewart did year of the cat. Um, but the lyrics for it, uh, uh, let me see. Uh, one morning from a Bogart movie in a country where they turn back time, you go strolling through the crowd like Peter Lorre contemplating a crime. Very so, nice. So, yeah, there you go. There's a Bogart reference for you there, Joe. I love Bogart uh, references. There you go. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, yeah, that's the, the, the four, Peter Lorre's mentioned in the third line of Year of the Cat, and I never realized it until just the other day. So, and, uh, yes, and thank you, uh, I think Francie put. Uh, yes, the Tor Johnson picture there. Yep, that's actually from the movie. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's from Plan 9. Um, oh, it is from Plan 9? Okay. Yeah, that one's where he plays uh, Inspector Daniel yes. Clay. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so, all right, well, we're right at the top of the hour. What else you want to say before we uh, uh go to Joe's segment in hour three. 
Nothing. I just didn't realize how many movies that they were in together, which made it really, really cool to research this because, you know, there were even some Westerns and some really silly mm -hmm. things. There's actually a Bob Hope movie that they were in together with oh, Bob gosh. Hope. That's why I didn't put that because Bob Hope movies, you know, now that I'm older, make me make me crazy. But yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, I enjoyed watching like the road movies and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I don't like Bing Crosby anymore either. So there you go. Yeah, uh, it, it's 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 kind of all of a bore, uh, all a bore. I have a few copies of Road to Bali on DVD that I'll give out to somebody. Oh for boy, free. <laughs> yeah, those are in the free pile. <laughs> So anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and go to the break. And Joe, we're going to get all peshied up. So you, you, t you talking to me? Yeah, I am. Oh, so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we'll be right back with lots more. It came from Cleveland right after this. I think I'll have me a little drinky winky. And now, on with the show. Turn it up so you can hear the screaming. Going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last. The real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish undoing. Something evil. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Oh, yeah. us. Supermodels? What do you model? Gloves? Not recommended for impressionable children. There you go, Joe. <laughs> uh, All right. Went to the old uh, Snickers commercial for uh, for a quick clip because I don't want to tread on any of your your stuff that was coming up. But anyway, welcome oh. back, uh, Miles. Are you back with us? Yep, yep, I'm here. All right, welcome back, uh, my captain, my captain of the submarine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Michelle, thank you very much for that uh, stroll down horror memory lane. I'm so glad you got a clip, a couple clips from that Horror Hall of Fame, uh, because that is, you know, that, that, uh, I sold that to a dude and he's like a repeat customer and <laughs> it's pretty cool. So, uh, and, uh, and Joe, I actually, uh, oh, go ahead, Michelle. I actually saved the entire segment to my hard drive so I can watch it whenever I want to. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that whole thing's on YouTube uh, if anybody wants to watch it. It's very cool. Um, and, uh, of course, Joe, all right, we're, we, we're loaded for bear uh, with, uh, with Joe Pesci clips tonight. Literally, yes. Well, yeah. Well, <clears throat> Joe Pesci, he almost lived in my neighborhood, uh, about an hour and a half from where I live. Yep. I was born and raised. Uh, Joe Pesci was born February 9th, 1943, in Newark, New Jersey. All right. Spent a lot of time in Newark in my day. Pesci was raised in uh, Bellevue, New Jersey, and graduated from Bellevue High School. And did you know that by he was a child star? I did not know that, no. That by the time he was five, he was appearing on plays in New York. No shit. Yes. And... 
he has a great musical background that has a local connection here in Scranton, or actually a suburb of Scranton, town I was born and raised in, Dunmore, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Because uh, as a teenager, Pesci was friends with singer Frankie Alley. I thought you were from uh, Dunless. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> I see what you did there, but it's not funny. Anyway, uh, Frankie Valley's mother was Mary Rinaldi, and the Rinaldis lived a few blocks from me. And Frankie Valley used to come to his grandmother's, his grandfather's house every summer and spend the summer here. Yeah. When he was a little kid. Yeah. I actually played with him uh, a couple of Oh, I'm only kidding. Spent some time with the in here. the valley he, with the valley. Yeah, so, yeah. No. <laughs> no, but he did. He did. He he was from Hill Street in Dunmore. I was from Franklin, just a couple blocks away. But uh, yeah, uh, he even used to come during concerts, and he would say uh, hello to his grandfather in the early '70s when I would go to concerts. Really? So anyway, getting back to, uh, and he was also the friend of Tommy DeVito. Uh, at age 16, and introduced them to singer and songwriter Bob Godillo, who led them to form the band The Four Seasons. How about Joe, huh? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Well, his first film that he starred in was a low-budget crime film called Death Collectors, alongside Frank Vincent. And in 1979, Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro were so impressed with his performance there that they asked him to co-star in Raging Bull. Do you remember that? Film? I do remember that little little film with uh, a terrible actor by the name of uh, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro playing Jake yeah. LaMotta. <laughs> yes, Jake LaMotta was the Raging Bull, and Joey LaMotta, Joey Pesci, was mm -hmm. his uh, was his brother. Yeah, he actually yeah. had a rib broken in the broke a rib during the film that. <clears throat> really, but really? anyway, yes. Uh, in 1990, he reunited with Scorsese and De Niro for a little-known, obscure film called Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In which he played mobster Tommy DeVito, which was the namesake of his friend that I mentioned in New Jersey. And based on real-life mobster Tommy DeSimone. And according to Pesci, improv improv improvisation and ad-libbing came out of the rehearsals for Goodfellas where Scorsese let them do whatever they wanted to do. So oh, like, for great. example, this, the scene where Tom, Tommy, which is Pesci's role, tells the story about to Henry Ray Liotta. Yeah. Yeah. And Ray Liotta is laughing and responding to him and they go to funny how I amuse you, blah, blah, blah. That scene mm -hmm. is actually based on an actual event that Pesci experienced. Wow. Pesci was working as a waiter when he was in New Jersey. When he he, uh, he was making a compliment, he thought, to a mobster by saying that he was funny. However, the comment was not taken well. Wow. Uh, so I don't know what happened that day, but it was worked into Pesci's rehearsals where he and the Leota improvised the whole thing. And Scorsese did about four or five takes of it, rewrote the dialogue, and just whacked it right into the script. Scorsese loved it so much. And that is our first clip. What, what's really funny is the fucking bank job away in Seat Caucus. I'm in the middle of the fucking weeds laying down. He comes over, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm resting. Here you're resting. I'm at a fucking beach in a park. I said, I'm resting. 
I know I'm rested. I'm rested. They pull me in. They start giving me all kinds of questions. You know, this and that. He says, oh, uh, so what are you going to tell us, tough guy? I said, my usual. Zero. Nothing. I tell you, the fuck. He says, no, you're going to tell me something today, tough guy. I said, all right, I'll tell you something. Go fuck your mother. <laughs> You saw the paper, Anthony. I was up like this. So now I'm coming around, you know. I start to come out of it. Who do I see in front of me? This big prick again. He says, Oh, what do you want to tell me now, tough guy? I said, Bing, what are you doing here? I thought I'd tell you to go fuck your mother. I thought he was going to shit. Ow, Bing. fuck is. I wish I was big just once. You're a big cop. Really funny. Really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? let me understand this, because I don't you know. Maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. <laughs> you stuttering prick yet? Frankie, was he shaking? <laughs> You sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. <laughs> you might fold, you under, may questioning. fold under questioning. <laughs> he really had him on that one, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I just thought well, that it was going to end with a baseball bat to the head or something. No, there was there was a scene in there where uh, somebody wouldn't bring him a drink, the, and uh, told him to go fuck himself. Sh- shot him dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but anyway, you know, there was just a great. A, go ahead. Uh, no, finish your thought on this, and then I want to make a, a, a side comment. No, go ahead, because we're going to go into the next clip. So well, I, I just was thinking about you know De Niro, and you know, I, I I'm I'm having a, a coming into a newer appreciation for these guys, and De Niro, you know, being one of them. And I was I was uh, looking, uh, of course, you know. I list movies on eBay, and I'm looking at the, that movie that Robert Rodriguez directed in 2010 called Machete with Danny Trejo, and it has Robert De Niro in it. And I'm looking at the rest of the cast, and I was like, only in this movie, only in this movie could one of the greatest actors alive, Robert De Niro, be cast alongside one of the worst actors alive, Steven Seagal. Oh God! Oh yeah! And oh, I'm Lord. like, I, and I was like, "Are you serious with this shit?" I mean, it just it's the Seagal is like one of the worst. And and I don't know if anybody's ever seen. There's a great YouTube video of uh, Steven Seagal running. Actually, we can probably find a GIF of it. In <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seagal can't act. He can't run. 
<laughs> no, he's too he's too uh, <clears throat> out of shape. Yeah, well, he couldn't run when he was in shape. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, go ahead and uh, 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 continue on. Well, there was a great, it's one of the great Letterman interviews of all time with Joe Pesci. Uh, it's on YouTube if anybody's interested in seeing it. it's it, You have to watch it. It's really funny because they really take each other apart. It was really great. And in that interview, Letterman turns the tables on Pesci and this clip. Are you a sportsman to yourself? Do you have, uh, do you have like, like tennis? You play oh, golf. golf. Yeah. yeah. How do you shoot? Um, I shoot in around a 16 handicap. I don't know what that means. Is that good? Well, I'm sorry. I go ahead. No, I, uh, it's, it's not bad. Yeah, do you think I'm funny? Do you think I'm funny? <laughs> I do, as a matter of Do you fact. find me amusing? I, no, I do. I think you're funny. Uh, what? Um, no, what? No, no what about are. me do you find amusing? You're, you're no, a big boy. You said you of, found me amusing. What things. about me do you think is funny? I think, you're, I think your face is funny. Number one. <laughs> 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 they had a lot of fun with that interview. At one, one point... Pesci said something, I forgot what it was, and uh, Letterman got up and walked off, and Pesci walked right behind him with his uh, suit jacket over his head like a perp. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> well, he but, did, they, had, they both had a great sense of humor, Pesci and uh, De Niro, because they, they, they walked in on set SNL one night. Oh, yeah. The Joe Pesci show, and that was hilarious. Right. They, were, they, were, they were good friends, uh, by the way. So, yeah, they got oh, along yeah. well. And they, they worked imagine. off each other well. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. And, you know, of course, they were in uh, Casino together as well, right? Yes, yes. So with Sharon so, Stone was in that, I believe? I don't know. She, she, I don't know. I but, I, yes, I remember them in Casino. Um, probably the favorite scene of Joe Pesci came, for me, anyway, came in a, uh, a, a movie in 1992 called My Cousin Vinny. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Love that movie. <laughs> Legendary. Okay, that th so, this movie has made its rounds on this show. That this is like the second or third time I think. So this Her is good. Herman Munster, you know oh, Fred yeah. Gwynn. Uh, well, the film for those that have not seen it, if you haven't, it's about two young men who from New York, the Bronx, traveling through rural Alabama. Talk about uh, the clash of cultures. Yeah, really. Uh, who who are arrested and put on trial for murder that they didn't commit, and. Uh, they call in their cousin Vinny, Vinny Gambino, who's Joe Pesci, and uh, he's a lawyer who only recently passed the bar after five unsuccessful attempts. <laughs> and he has no trial experience whatsoever. Uh, it's it's like it's a contest between Italian American New York and Little Abner South, you know? Yeah. And and the judge who Chamberlain Heller played by Fred Gwynn, is suspicious of Gambini's qualifications as an attorney, as a defense attorney, and he requests some judicial records from New York State to find out if there was really a Vincent Gambini practicing law. He couldn't believe this guy practiced law. But as the movie proves, Vinny is a quick thinker. Uh, and in this next clip, he is called in by the judge to explain wh why there's no judicial record of him being a lawyer in new york state 
And later on, in the end of the clip, you'll hear Mona Lisa Vito, <laughs> the Marissa Tomei. Yep. Point out one little detail. He gets away with it by fast talking the judge, but he leaves out one little detail. <laughs> clip three. See, 20 years ago, I became an actor. And uh, there was this very prominent stage actor in New York. His name was Vincent Gambini. Maybe you heard of him. No. Ever heard of him? Doesn't matter. Anyway, I had to change my name, which I did legally. So now I practice law under my legally changed stage name. What name is that? Jerry Knocks over his chest set. Jerry Gallo. Putting the chest you pieces back. still call me Gambini. Sorry. And what name did you tell him? Jerry Gallo. Jerry Gallo? The big attorney? Yeah. Think that was a smart move? Yeah, well, the man is a seriously accomplished lawyer. He checks up on this guy, his name will show up all over the place. Mm, his name was in the papers all last week. Yeah, I saw that. But you didn't actually read the articles. No. It's too bad. Why is that? Because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> he gave the name of a dead attorney. Yeah. By uh, the way, I absolutely love Marissa Tomei. Oh, yeah. She was so yes. good in this film. So good. So as the trial... Go ahead. I was just, I fell in love with her in that movie she did with Christian Slater, uh, Untamed Heart. Uh-huh. So where uh, <laughs> Christian Slater played a guy who had a baboon heart, or maybe not. <laughs> so yes. anyway, it's a great it's a great little uh, romantic uh, comedy drama. Well, anyway, as the trial starts out, as I said, there's a little clash of cultures here, and there's also a little. See, in in New York, they don't speak the same language as they do in Alabama. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Clip four. Mr. Tipton, when you viewed the defendants walking from their car into the sack of suds, what angle was your point of view? They was kind of walking toward me when they entered the store. And when they left, what angle was your point of view? They was kind of walking away from me. So would you say you got a better shot at them going in and not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Yeah. Is it possible the two youths... Uh, uh, two what? <laughs> uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? Two what? What? Did you say youths? Yeah, two youths. What is a youth? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. <laughs> youths. <laughs> it's like when people say Scranton, Scranton, and you go, oh, "I'm sorry, Scranton." <laughs> yes. Scranton. So, Scranton. That's Scrant Scranton. So anyway, one morning. Uh, Vinny and Lisa, and this is very important to the plot, because this is how he starts to un unravel the mystery of who really did the murder. Vinny mm -hmm. and Lisa go to a diner. Now, I did this in North Carolina over a, a course of a week when we were moving Bob up, and I had the same experience with grits. So I really latched on to this one. They go to a diner, 
and there's a comical scene where they discover a very interesting fact about cooking grits that becomes crucial in the defense of his cousin. Clip five. What's, what's this over here? You never heard of grits? Sure, sure, I heard of grits. I used to actually never seen a grit before. Yeah, honey, you can try it. You first. What is a grit, anyways? It's made out of corn. Them hominy grits. Hominy? Hmm. <laughs> How do you cook it? Well, you simmer it in water for 15 or 20 minutes, put it on the plate and add butter. Gonna eat it or not? <laughs> <laughs> and he does. Uh, so, most closely, he established that it takes about twenty minutes to prepare grits. Yes. And believe me, it only it takes only three seconds to wipe it off your plate. But that's another story. <laughs> um, Vinny has a brilliant plan now, and recall and remember the twenty minutes because he recalls calls to the stand the store clerk who swore that his cousins were the ones that committed the murder. But it has something to do with that clerk's faulty recollection of how grits are prepared in Clip 6. Is it possible the two defendants entered the store, picked 22 specific items off of the shelves, had the clerk take money, make change, then leave? Then two different men drive up in a similar... Don't shake your head. I'm not done yet. Wait till you hear the whole thing so you can understand this now. Two different men drive up in a similar looking car, go in, shoot the clerk, rob him, and then leave? No. They didn't have enough time. Well, how much time was they in the store? Five minutes. Five minutes? Are you sure? Did you look at your watch? No. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You testified earlier that the boys went into the store... And you had just begun to make breakfast. You were just ready to eat and you heard a gunshot. That's right, I'm sorry. So obviously it takes you five minutes to make breakfast. That's right. Right, so you knew that. Uh, Do you remember what you had? Eggs and grits. Eggs and grits. I like grits too. How do you cook your grits? You like them regular, creamy, or al dente? Just regular, I guess. Regular. Instant grits? No self-respecting Southerner uses instant grits. I take pride in my grits. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. (laughs) I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stoves. Were these magic grits? I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Uh, you know, objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five minutes? Ignore the, the question. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. 
I got no more use for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, the case starts to fall apart. And then his star witness comes, Lisa. Lisa Vito. <laughs> and she talks about something I knew a lot about when I was in high school. Independent rear suspension and positive traction. <laughs> Which, oh. uh, the reason I knew a lot about positive traction because we all loved Corvettes. But in ah. this case, uh, yeah, it had positive traction. But um, in this case, uh, they she rules out uh, the cousin's Bu Buick Skylark, who was the cousin's car. Well, let clip seven tell you how. All right. Ms. Vito, please answer the question. Does the defense's case hold water? No. The defense is wrong. Are you sure? I'm positive. How could you be so sure? Because there is no way that these tire marks were made by a 64 Buick Skylark. These marks were made by a 1963 Pontiac Tempest. Objection, Your Honor. Can we clarify to the court whether the witness is stating opinion or fact? This is your opinion? It's a fact. I find it hard to believe that this kind of information could be ascertained simply by looking at a picture. Would you like me to explain? I would love to hear this. So would I. The car that made these two equal length tire marks had positive traction. Can't make those marks without positive traction, which was not available on the 64 Buick Skylark. And why not? What is positive traction? It's a limited slip differential which distributes power equally to both the right and left tires. The 64 Skylark had a regular differential, which anyone who's been stuck in the mud in Alabama knows you step on the gas, one tire spins, the other tire does nothing. Nice friend. Is that it? No, there's more. You see, when the left tire mark goes up on the curb and the right tire mark stays flat and even, mm -hmm. well, the 64 Skylark had a solid rear axle. So when the left tire would go up on the curb, the right tire would tilt out and ride along its edge. But that didn't happen here. The tire mark stayed flat and even. This car had an independent rear suspension. Now, in the 60s, there were only two other cars made in America that had positive traction and independent rear suspension and enough power to make these marks. One was the Corvette, which could never be confused with the Buick Skylark. The other had the right. same body length, height, width, weight, wheelbase, and wheel track as the 64 Skylark, and that was the 1963 Pontiac Tempest. And because both cars were made by GM, were both cars available in metallic mint green paint? They were. Thank you, Ms. Vito. No more <laughs> questions. Thank you very, very much. You've been a lovely, lovely witness. <laughs> very cool. Yes. And two men. I suspect Wes is tampering there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, they had a big argument before he put her on the stand, so I... I yeah, I know. <laughs> but the two men who fit Bill and Stan's description were just arrested in Georgia driving a mint green Pontiac Tempest. And they were in possession of the 357 Magnum, which killed the, the clerk in this trial. And so Vinny rests the defense, and Trotter dismisses all charges. 
And that's, I have just three more clips. I guess we'll do them after the break. Yeah, we'll do, we kind of have a long trailer break uh, because we've got four birthdays and we're going to, we got some, some fun regional Zsa Zsa Gabor radio clips uh, from Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to as many of those as we can. We might have to save some for uh, coming weeks, but I think that could be a fun little feature. Um, So, yeah, um, I guess we should just go to the break, but Michelle, you care to... uh, uh, tell us our the four trailers we're going to be hearing. We're going to end, of course, with uh, the the one that will go along with the radio stuff. Okay, very cool. Um, we have uh, Mike Farrell in a small little tiny trailer break. Uh, he was born February 6, 1939, known from his uh, character in MASH. Um, he was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was in a silly made-for-TV movie called Locust, which also had Lucy Lawless in it. <laughs> Ooh, love her as well. Yes, I do. She's, she's amazing. Um, our second trailer too. will be Seth yeah, Mr. Seth Green, uh, great comedian, great actor, uh, robot chicken fan, uh, uh, you know, of, of robot chicken fandom. Um, he was born February 8th, 1974 in Oak Bridge, Oak Brook Park, Philadelphia. Um, he is in a movie, a comedy called Idle Hands from 1999. And then we have Tina Louise. Uh, born February 11th, 1934, uh, New York City, New York, better known as Ginger from Gilligan's Island. Yep. Um, she is in two movies. One movie that has John Carradine in it as well, called Evils of the Night, 1985. Really, really bad movie. Awful audio. And mm. the second movie is The Stepford Wives. Mm, very nice. And then we have Queen of Outer Space starring Zsa Zsa Gabor. Yes. We'll be right <laughs> back after this. What's that? My load has its resistant to all known pesticides. What you've created is a bioweapon. How the hell did this happen? I want them destroyed. They could devour a continent. Locust, a world premiere movie, CBS Sunday, April 24th. I came all the way over here, you said you was holding. I didn't say what I was holding. <laughs> Anton Tobias never had much on his mind. Don't you think you should have like a goal? My dream life would be to lie around all day in bed and watch TV while somehow Brad delivers me food. And he always had time on his hands. Four bodies have been discovered and the killer is still at large. Until one of them <laughs> got a mind of its own. control on my hands ah! makes me do things i don't want him to do aren't you a little old for ding dong ditch <laughs> sorry about your bush i'm gonna call 911 what's the number i'm not the killer okay i mean if oj could get off then i'm sure you'll be here now his hand won't stop i don't want to hurt you they don't ew that's disgusting his friends won't die. Dead. Undead, actually. And it was this big, bright white light at the end of a long tunnel. So what happened? We were like, forget that, man. It's too far. And the only way to stop it... Oh! Idle hands of the devil's playpen, so keep my hands occupied, right? ...is to keep it busy. Freeze! 
Drop the knitting needles. That's probably not a good idea. Put it down! Cuff me! Put those needles down, young man! Cuff me, cuff me, Columbia Pictures presents... The police have no leads, and the killer is still out there. You scream like a girl. The comedy. Careful, it's on kind of loose. That's really starting to get on my nerves. That dares to give scary movies... Hey, look at me! Don't me in the face! The backhand. What you doing, man? That's my dad. Come on. CPR, man. I saw him Baywatch. Did you lose something there, bud? Idle Hands. The touching story of a boy and his hand. Kinky. Fly for a white guy. <laughs> My boob. What's the matter with this pair, Buster? Nothing. Oh, no. your bones eventually go fragile and break. You'd be dead within a hundred years. But with... Voyages to the outer universe are reality. Satellite space stations in operation for landing and refueling. Apparently we have some deadly neighbors in outer space. Captain, it's heading toward us. And now the story of the fantastic adventure that befalls mankind's most daring crew of space explorers. Not a sound. Not even the hum of an insect. Is this a dead planet? Landing on an unknown planet, they are captured by long-limbed beauties. When they say, take me to your leader, and they take them to a creature like this, you know they're on planet Venus. And the queen of outer space is Zsa Gabor. 
most talked about woman in the world knows what she wants on Venus, too. Then we're the only men on the whole planet? Yes. Wow. You'll see the revolt that brings the planet under the domination of strangely masked females who hate and fear the male animal. Let me kill her now. You're not only a queen, you're a woman, too. Let me see your face. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. <laughs> the war of the sexes. familiar. When voluptuous Venusians give battle to spacemen from Earth. The destructive might of incredible space rays that stop man from returning to Earth. Prepare for maximum acceleration. Savage horrors of mutated beasts. Uh, did that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot where I got that from. That's uh, yeah. So that's in our uh, intro for it came from Cleveland. Um, pretty great. So there, there's really no real savage horror of mutated beasts in that movie. It's not that. Scary. Not really. <laughs> it's pretty dumb. Uh, the most talked about woman in the world because she slapped a cop. Uh. <laughs> yeah, th- th- there are some examples of hot couture and some really um, uh, gratuitous uses of uh, funky masks in that movie. Yeah, yeah, th- this is true. So anyway, welcome back, Michelle. Thank you for uh, putting together our trailer breaks for tonight. And of course, the big horror hour. That was a lot of fun. It was two great actors, and I, I just, I felt so sorry for Lon Chaney Jr. I really, yeah, did. yeah, it's a, it's a drag, and, uh, but I, I, I don't feel as bad for him as all those guys who drowned in that submarine, well, suffocated in that submarine, Miles. That's a brutal way to go. Oh, Russia! When will you ever learn? And the, and the sad thing is, they still had faith. So does just a quick question because I'm I'm I never thought about this, but does do does Russia do they have aircraft carriers? One, one for a nation that large. I mean, I'm I'm not a you know I'm all for de-escalating you know military everything, but man, for a country that large, they have one aircraft carrier. They have no budget. Is huge, but as uh, Hal Sparks points out, their economic power is the same as Italy. Yeah, I mean, and and that's the thing. What do they have to export? Petroleum. That's it. That's it. Resources. <laughs> they are the Saudi Arabia of Asia. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and anyway, uh, well, welcome back to you as well, Miles. And uh, I hope you guys are all having a good time. I'm enjoying myself. What a pleasant Friday. Uh, lots of cool topics uh, we're covering tonight. And Joe, uh, we're going to talk about uh, your other Joe a little bit more until we get into uh, not Joe, but Jaja. <laughs> Jaja. Yeah. Well, jo- uh, real quick, um, another uh, birthday was uh, Chris Rock this week. You know that? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And it just so happens that... Chris Rock and Joe Pesci were in a f- movie uh, series together, the Lethal Weapon series. That is correct. And in Lethal Weapon 4, 
uh, in the next clip, uh, we have a confrontation where uh, Pesci played playing Leo Getz, a private investigator, friend of Riggs and Murtaugh, you know, Gibson and Glover. Yep. And uh, he's he's uh, testing out his his uh, tracking abilities. He's trying to brush up on them in a gigantic red SUV. <laughs> and <laughs> he pulls alongside of of uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover with Chris Rock in the back seat of their car. And the following happens. You're looking for us, Leo? You saw me, huh? Yeah, yeah we saw you. Uh, what you doing, Leo? Uh, you know, I've been perfecting my tailing technique now that I'm a PI and all. Oh, he's a private eyesore. Nice inconspicuous vehicle. I like it. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Riggs, who's the uh, perp? What'd you bust him for? Oh, I'm a perp? Oh, you see a young brother in the back of a police car automatically, I'm a perp? Look at my suit. Look at my tie. What do I look like, the fucking Crips accountant? <laughs> look at this bag, bitch. Check out the gun. Okay, okay, hey, hey, oh, okay, put the gun down, put the gun down. License, <laughs> registration, okay. urine sample. Hey, I got a badge too, okay? Hey, German Jews didn't have it any easier when we were kids, so uh, don't think you're the only one, okay? Okay? Hey, hey, besides, I knew you were a cop. I was only kidding with you. Hey, I can smell a cop a mile away. Oh, I smell bad? What's what you trying to say? No, well, stop turning everything around. You're so damn touchy. These guys will tell you we work together. We got a history together. It, 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 maybe we'll work together someday. I'm the bomb. They'll tell you I'm great. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to work together. As soon as I open up a cereal shop, you fucking leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, second leprechaun reference tonight on the program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after, while that's all going on, another cop comes up on Pesci's uh, driver's side and uh, tells him he's double parked. And another thing ensues: Riggs and Murta pull away and leave him there, and he gets arrested by, for double parking. And uh, he takes his revenge on clip nine. Thanks a lot, you guys. Very funny, you know. That cop had me there for an hour, trying to strip search me. Did you get his phone number? Ah, very funny. Sugar glaze with the jelly. Thanks, Leo. Thanks a lot. Hey, what the hell happened to you? Scratches. Dog. A dog? Dog scratch you like that? Hey, catch you drinking out of his bowl? Very funny. I'm working on a very important PI case. Did the dog hire you? No, the dog didn't hire me. The people that lost the dog hired me. Oh, sounds like a real big case. It is a big case, Mr. Big Shot, for all you know. It's a very expensive dog. Bull short. Bullzoy. Whatever, whatever. You found it, huh? Well, sort of. Mm. Okay, okay, listen what happens. Mm. Instead of going all around town looking for a dog, spending all kinds of money, I went to the pound. I get the dog, take the dog home, I dye the dog, it looks exactly like their dog. The dog was a real rat, though. He scratched me all up like this. But I got the job done. Some kind of PI business you got there, Leo. Yeah, douche Ventura, pet infected. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And then Leo spots Detective Butters, who he had the confrontation with Chris Rock, who he had the confrontation with earlier. And he says, oh, I don't let him see him. Don't let me see him. See me. And uh, they had this hilarious conversation about cell, cell phones in clip 10. Here comes that touchy kid. I'm not here. I'm not here. Captain Riggs, Captain Murtaugh. What do you got, Putter? The guy you chased through Chinatown? Yeah. The gun he dropped matched slugs on the bodies on the boat. That's your shooter. Son of a bitch, they got away from me. No, I didn't get too far. They found him on a rooftop nearby. Strangled. And get this, pigeons ate his eyeballs. Cool. Excuse me. Hello? Hello? Shit! Fucking phones, man. 
You get a call, they cut you off. You make a call, they cut you off. What's the point? I never Don't get you know what they're doing, kid? That's, they fuck you with cell phones. That's what it is. They're fucking you with the cell phone. They love when you get cut off. You know why? Huh? You know why? Because when you call back, which they know you're going to do, they charge you for that fucking first minute again at that high rate. If you're lucky enough to be able to call back because the three-hour battery you got only lasts for 20 fucking minutes. Or what if you're behind a fucking hill and it's going... Oh, you're you going through a damn anyway. tunnel or some shit, man? And they keep making it smaller. You know why they make them this small? So you can lose them. Why? So you have to buy more phones. I never lost my mother's phone taking two hours to make a damn long-distance call. Oh, I messed up. Hang up. Gotta do it again. I never lost my Sports Illustrated swimsuit phone. And how about the fucking scanners? These idiots, they get your phone number. And then they make calls. Oh, somebody took my number. happened to you? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. I don't know nobody in Afghanistan. I don't know what fucking Afghanistan look like. And even if I did, I would not talk to that Afghan ass for three hours. I won't talk to my daddy for three hours. They fuck you, they fuck you, they fuck you with the cell phones. Hey, you know what happens when you go to a drive-thru? They get you any... Hold on, hold on. Why am I talking? Hold on. Leo Getz, private investigator. Private investigator? Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Getz, I was wondering if you would be willing to investigate my privates. Investigate what? <laughs> my privates, you stupid shit. Shut the fuck up. Oh, very funny, Riggs. You're costing me a lot of money here. Yeah, at least $3. three bucks. Yeah. Fucking caller. Fucking me with the cell phones. Now you're fucking me. You're pretty tough when you're on the phone, aren't you, little fella? That's right. Telephone tough guy. Why am I talking to you on the phone? Get the fuck out of here. Go home. No means no. <laughs> no means no. Too funny. So, uh, Pesci uh, announced his retirement in 1999. Wanted to pursue uh, more of his uh, musical uh, career, yeah. but uh, as you all know, in 2017, uh, Scorsese did coax him out of retirement. Uh, to play Russell Buffalino in The Irishman, if you've seen that film. Uh, great film. Great film. And Russell Buffalino happens to be from my area, Pittston, Pennsylvania. Uh, big shot here. Big mafia guy. Nice. Uh, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Actor, a BAFTA Award for Best Supporting Actor, and a Screen Actors Guilds Award. Uh, so cool. that's Joe Pesci. Nice. Amazing guy. Amazing. So guy. Yes, I couldn't of, do anything with with uh, yeah. I couldn't do anything with uh, Home Alone's one or two because most of that was sight gags. So yes, yeah, there a wasn't lot a lot of stuff to do on the radio. But uh, yeah. that's Joe Pesci. Love the man. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thank you, Joe. That was that was that was awesome. You know, uh, this this show is full of flavor tonight, everybody. Flavor, flavor. We got all kinds of goodness in this program. And, and all uh, sorts of accents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all kinds of accents, all kinds of you know uh, uh, delivery. And we're uh, all know. Utes. And we're, we're all, all Utes. Utes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course, you know, uh, uh, you don't even know our real name here. <laughs> well, I will not be blackmailed by some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft penis debutante. Soft you want to start a street fight with me, bring it on. But you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. Yep. So we're all the Lizard King and Queen around here. So <laughs> I just, I, I could not, I love these clips. I love, you know, 
the, you know, again, I got to play this one more time. Yes, that's it. Push yourselves, boys. Not a party if you don't do something that scares you. I need a breather. I need a breather. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, let's go ahead and uh, we need a little bit of backstory here, Michelle. Uh, we, we should be able to play at least one of these clips. Um, this is, uh, you, you sent me some audio of, uh, a local radio show that you, uh, were, now were you involved with this? Uh, because I know you worked in radio before. Was this the, the station you were involved with or the show you were involved with? Uh, yeah. Um, I was, uh, with WCZR in an unofficial capacity. I worked with the charity that the love doctors had created. Um, it was a charity okay. to give toys for underprivileged families in our area. Okay. Um, we, we'd accept new unwrapped gifts and we put it and it became such a huge thing, not just serving one County anymore. Cause this, this radio show, uh, they're the original, uh, they, they, their, their studios were here in Port St. Lucie, Florida, but they broadcasted through West Palm and we ended up coming, covering like five or six counties you know nice. you know we, we yeah we did okeechobee we did uh indian river we did uh stewart we did palm uh uh st lucy and even in west palm so it was a huge area that this this drive and en ended up covering mm -hmm. and um yeah it was 20 plus years and finally you know they had to close it down because it just got too big and they just couldn't deal with it anymore yeah but um yeah, so I was there from the inception. I originally started off just bringing cookies and 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 pies to them. You know, mm -hmm. I would bake stuff for them and bring them in for them. Then and then I started enter helping out with the delivery, uh, well, with the gathering and the wrapping. And then I ended up doing database, you know, input for them. So oh, nice, and I nice. got yeah. So I, I I ended up really knowing these people. I mean, you you mm -hmm. yeah you had Glenn, you had uh, Rich, you had Lexis, who was their their eye candy. She's a sweet girl though. Um, you had two different producers. You had Terrence the Hair Howard, and then you had Dano, and they were really fun guys. And they actually uh from you know when music started fading out of radio, they started the three hour talk show. Okay here and here locally and you know they had to kind of compete one of the funny things is one year uh there was a carton of books that were delivered to the to the charity rush limbaugh's book mm. and wow. somehow uh those books ended up that, that that carton of books ended up like pushed into a back closet and never distributed <laughs> <laughs> so that's good that's 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 good yeah so they get they get celebrity uh people to call in um one time i was i called in and uh rich and glenn put me on the same phone as, as ron jeremy which really really embarrassed me but um well. yeah so they had celebrities <laughs> call in for the to toy drive and one year jaja called in and this was i think just after the cop slapping incident so they uh were not overly loving with her yeah if anybody doesn't remember that that was what approximately what year was that uh jaja gabor slapped the cop i don't remember it just oh, it was awful what was she it did. the late like, late 90s or i think so yeah so uh it, yeah but jaja gabor got pulled over by a, a cop for expired tags on was it a rolls royce or something and yeah uh, and and she 
she got pissed off at the cop and she slapped him and it was a huge incident and it was it but and it just kind of like reeked of her her privilege now i will say uh you know as a pseudo celebrity because seriously you know uh she she was kind of um a novelty Overshone by her sister, too. Yeah, yeah. She was kind of a novelty quantity in Hollywood at that point, you know, making just little appearances here and there. You know, she never really... She didn't make that many movies. I think she made 38 movies or something like that, which is not that impressive compared to a lot of her peers. Uh, You know, again, shouldn't be a pissing contest or anything, but she was kind of an unpleasant person. And I will say this... Um, these clips, I listen to them. They're definitely, they're a little mean spirited, but they're still fun. <laughs> you know? Yes, they are. And I, I do cringe when I listen to them, but I still giggle too. And that makes yeah. me a bad person. I know, but oh well, <laughs> well, I, and in the first one is her talking about doing an interview with Larry King and it's, oh, she, it's amazing. It, it literally sounds like she said she made love to Mar- Larry King. And it, yeah, because she has that thick accent. Yeah, and it was it, it, it. So it's really funny. So yeah, this here's here's the the first clip. And again, this is from the Love Doctors. From uh, what was the the station name? Uh, 92.1 Real Radio or WZZR. Okay, and this is again from the uh, I believe from the late nineties. So what's his deal yeah. with David Letterman? You got the hots for him or what? Are you crazy? I'm happily married. I don't have the hots for him. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he has it. I work with him because he likes to, to have me on the show because we are funny together. Okay. Can we take you back in time? It was about a year ago you were on Larry King. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which one? I made lots of Larry King. You did what? I done lots of Larry King shows. Oh, I thought you said you made love to Larry King. <laughs> I thought that's what you said. <laughs> okay, we made lots of Larry Kings. That's how we call it. Okay, oh. but you did, but you didn't make love to Larry King, did you? You're stupid. Oh, yes, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, now about that. Porno show you invited me to? Do what? Is your show a porno show or what? No. Are you disappointed? Are you crazy? I'm a European lady. I, I don't know these things, but I mean, how dare you ask me if I made love to Larry King? What am I, a whore or something? <laughs> Uh, far be it for me to make a judgment like that, Jasha. Come on, man. Work with me. For eight years to the Prince von Anhalt. I'm yeah. very happy, and we don't cheat on each other. Well, that's great. That's well, great. Yeah, we're happy. That's, that's wonderful. That's, we, mm-hmm. we love love here on the lunch hour. I hope so. Yeah. Now, how many times have you been married, Jasha? Uh, what? How many times have you been married? Have some respect and don't dare ask me. Oh, I didn't know that was a bad question. I've been married nine times. I'm not ashamed of it. Other women, I knew women in American famous ladies who sleep with more men in a month than I was married. Name them. Only married man. Like who? I'm not going to mention that I have a lawsuit with that lousy, uh, uh, what's her name, Elke Summers, because I didn't say anything about her. She wants three and a half million dollars from me because I'm famous and she wants money. Are you saying, are you saying that Elke Sl- uh, Summers sleeps around? I did not oh. say that. Oh. I didn't, I don't even know Elke Summers. I met her twice in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't you dare put words in my mouth. No, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just trying to clarify this. Yeah, yeah. El- Elke's. I don't know Elke Summers at all, but I know a couple of very elegant ladies in Palm Beach mm-hmm. and also in New York and Hollywood, mm-hmm. famous women mm-hmm. who sleep with more men in a month, mm-hmm. and I slept all my life. Like who? 
I don't know. Oh, I thought you were going to name them for us. Why not? I just have a three and a half million dollars. Do you think I'm going to put my foot in it again? Mm. Don't be so naive, honey. Let's grow up. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's grow up. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's some pretty fun stuff. But I think uh, we, we should probably save the rest and, and make this an ongoing saga. There are two more chapters to this that are all oh, between yes. the two, <laughs> two and a half and three minute um, ones. And the, the, the third chapter is, woo. Yes. And it's funny, guys. I, I think she went through some publicists through, through, through these couple calls because I'm pretty sure she fired each one after each time. So. Oh, I'm fairly certain, too. I'm fairly certain, too. But no, that was, that was pretty funny. I love hearing this uh, this vintage uh, local radio stuff, even though, you know, it, it is cringy. But, you know, it, it was a different time and you could say things that you can't say now and uh with without the repercussions right and and then yeah and that goofy laugh you heard in the background that was their producer Terrence O'Hare Howard at that time um they are they were a lovely group of people they were very mm. sweet off air and that sort of thing but you know they're in talk radio here in in South Florida and they had to deal with the AM you know the the crap that uh you know Limbaugh was spewing and all that yeah, so yeah. they had to have a different take on things so and, you know, but, the the shock jock era was, you know, I, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, as sleazy as Howard Stern was during his shows, he's still a decent human being, you know? Yeah, and, and also I'll tell you, uh, Rich Dickerson mm-hmm. is part of the, resp- he, he has he has some responsibility for the Kiss Army. Oh, very cool, very cool. Oh, my he God. Hated, oh, he hated Kiss. He was, he was a, he was a concert promoter. At, mm-hmm. at, before he became a radio personality, yeah, and so he, some of the, the some of the stuff he talked about Kiss w- is responsible for Kiss the Kiss Army becoming a thing. So oh, there you go. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So all right, well, I guess we should start wrapping things up. We're having too much fun here. Um, I know I could probably go for another hour, but we I, I got work I got to do too. Yeah, so, uh, I love these guys, and we, we yeah. can talk about them later. And they're 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 a fun local group of people, and you know I know their wives. I knew you know mm-hmm. they they were great people. So all right, very good. Well, I'll tell you what. Here here's our three minute countdown for the end of the show. Uh, let's go ahead and give our parting shots. Uh, um, Michelle, go ahead, go first. What do you got? have much we had a great uh, group of birthdays uh this this week um john carradine lon cheney i cannot speak uh, enough about those two they they were absolutely amazing i love the vincent price interview and i'm so glad i found some stuff i had not seen before so i yeah. am so happy very good very good all right miles what about you sir uh everybody Practice safe watching of the Super Bowl and enjoy the commercials. <laughs> That's all I'll enjoy from it. I'm about <laughs> ready much. to stop hearing about the goddamn Bengals any minute now. <laughs> well, I'm happy for them. You know, they've never won anything. So I, hey. I just, I, I, I'm in Ohio, so every time I flip on the news, all I hear is Bengals, 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 Bengals. And it's like, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I get it. Get get it done. <laughs> Do it. Whatever. <laughs> Thank God you're not a Cleveland well, team, so I don't have to deal with your parades. Uh, I'll, well, I'll be rooting for them. So I don't 
I don't even know who else is playing. I just didn't know the Bengals are. The Rams. Oh. Minnesota? Where are they from? LA, LA now. LA. Oh. Did they used to be from Minnesota? I have no idea. I think they were this originally the St. Louis Rams. I don't even know. So and then they moved to LA. Anyway, and Joe, uh, what do you got on the way out? Well, uh, you know, Sunday we're going to do uh, another clown car that uh, written by everybody here. <laughs> Michelle, Miles, Kenny. Oh, yeah, Every- we had fun with that. <laughs> we had funny. So uh, uh, I uh, I wound it into a, a, a spoof on uh, Dragnet, and it will be Soupnet. Soupnet. Very good. Very nice. Oh, and yes. of course, that was inspired by uh, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor, Taylor. Marjorie Taylor Orange. Yes, yes, and her and the gazpacho <laughs> coming into her office. Oh dear God! Uh, oh yes. yeah. <laughs> so, looking forward to that. Uh, everybody, uh, have a terrific weekend. Uh, stay safe. Watch out. Don't you know the 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 plague is still raging. So really be safe. Uh, I found out about some friends that got sick last uh, fall, and I'm irritated by that. But anyway, everybody have a a great weekend, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, I can see it.